1: Lucifer means Lightbringer Prisons. The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Moons of Ice and Fire, Part 4. The Long Night Was His to Rule.
2: Hey there, friends, patrons, and fellow mythical astronomers. It's your friend Elamel, here with another Moons of Ice and Fire episode to chill you to the bone. Because it's time to talk about Night's King. Last time we hung out with Aegon the Conqueror and his Dragon Queens of Ice and Fire, and we essentially led up to the grand hypothesis that Night's King seems to have been a blood of the dragon person of the line of Azor high, and that the story of Night's King and Night's Queen seems to be the origin story of the Others— as opposed to something which took place sometime shortly after the Long Night, as is commonly believed. Clearly, I'm going to have to back up those assertions, and that's what we're here to do today. In terms of archetypes and legends, I suggested that Azor Ahai's Moons of Ice and Fire love triangle seems to cast Nissa Nissa as his fire moon Bride, and Night's Queen as his ice moon Bride. At some point in between these two weddings, Azor Ahai would have become the Night's King seemingly through his use of profane blood magic which played a part in bringing on the Long Night. As Azor Ahai, he seems to have cracked the moon with a blood magic rite performed with Nissa Nissa, most likely against her will, in my opinion. And as Night's King, he gave his seed and soul to Night's Queen and produced cold children, who were transformed into the first White Walkers through a process we don't entirely understand yet. One of the main ways we arrived at this conclusion, or at least... The way that I arrived at it, and have hopefully persuaded you to consider it as a plausible hypothesis, is by the discovery of the other-like symbolism of the Kingsguard and the Warrior Sons. Both of them are tied to Visenya, because Visenya created the Kingsguard, and because the Warrior Sons make the Sept of on Visenya's Hill their home base. This creates an important parallel between Visenya and Night's Queen, as icy moon queens who play the Mother of the Others role. The Kingsguard in particular were created to protect King Aegon, who, with his night-black armor, black fire sword, and his black dread dragon, make for the ultimate prototype of the Dark Solar King. I've begun to make the case that Night's King is part of that same Dark Solar King archetype, highlighting the fact that both Night's King and Aegon the Conqueror take one of these Mother of the Other figures to wife. I also highlighted the fact that King Stannis seems to possess fairly clear parallels to both Night's King and Azor Ahai, and as we'll see today, he's not alone in that combination. Ultimately, it is that thing called RLJ, the combination of Stark and Targaryen which made Jon Snow, that explains the deepest meaning of this first leg of the Moons of Ice and Fire series. Jon is the prince that was promised, and his song is the Song of Ice and Fire in part because of his Stark and Targaryen heritage, so of course this is going to come to a head with him. John is the most important ice dragon in the story. Even if another ice dragon comet comes around, John will still be more important, if only slightly. He's the special snowflake, after all. But before we can get to RLJ, and before I can begin to draw more conclusions from the theory that Night's King was a Blood of the Dragon person, I want to provide more evidence to support my Night's King theory itself. I also want to show you more moons of ice and fire love triangles to help support my theory that there were two moons in the first place, and that these so-called love triangles are symbolizing a sun and two moons. And I should add that although I call the two moons theory my theory, it's actually just a face value reading of the Carthine myth which talks about there having been two moons, so I feel like that's important to point out. It's not exactly out of left field, it's in the first book. Anyway, here's the good news. This is hardly going to be a slow episode, just because I'm reinforcing things that I've already proposed. We'll be starting with our first character to play the Night's King role, Stannis Baratheon, and finishing up with the most important Night's King character of the final act of our story, a character many of you have been waiting for me to discuss. And that's none other than Mr. Pirate Odin on Bad Acid himself, Euron Crow's Eye. In between, we'll visit some dear friends of mythical astronomy, such as John, Melisandra, Ygritte, and Gilly, And we'll say hello to some fresh faces, too, such as Selyse Baratheon, Val the Wildling Princess, Craster, Sir Waymar Royce, and, of course, Euron. And I'll even throw in a few Targaryens, Starks, and Danes from ages past. We'll have some stellar mythical astronomy metaphors, naturally, and an excellent dragon-on-dragon battle featuring Vhagar, and I might even offer you some shade of the evening when the moment is right. And by when the moment is right, I mean that we'll be visiting the House of the Undying and those shady, blue-lipped warlocks. Oh, and one other note. This episode will contain spoilers for the Forsaken chapter of The Winds of Winter, which George has read aloud at a con, and the transcript of which can be found in several places online. History of Westeros also offers a great review of the chapter, by the way. Now, I know a few of you guys and gals might be holding off on reading Winds of Winter spoiler chapters. However, I feel that you can and should make an exception for The Forsaken, because George actually did intend for it to be a part of A Dance with Dragons, only to have it cut for length. It doesn't reveal any major plot twists. It basically just takes what we know about Euron already, which is that he's crazy, uses sorcery, and has delusions of grandeur, and turns the dial up to eleven. The chapter is primarily interaction between Aeron, Dampere, and Euron, interspersed with nightmare visions, and it's mostly the symbolism in the nightmares that I'm after as it relates to Euron. Hopefully that's not a problem for anyone, but fair warning. I don't think this podcast will lessen anyone's experience when Winds comes out, and if anything, it might give you a hazy, shade-of-the-evening-like glimpse into the horrors that await you, which will only wet your taste for more. However, I did leave that section to the end of the podcast, so if you really don't want to be spoiled, you can stop at the Euron section and miss everything I have to say about him. I mean, if that's what you really want. Now, it's going to be a very character-driven episode, which everyone seems to like, but the overarching mission will be to discover the nature of Night's King. We'll also continue to explore the Ice and Fire dichotomy that runs through the story, as will every episode in the Moons of Ice and Fire series. So just sort of keep those ideas in the back of your mind as we go. Night's King, Ice and Fire Dichotomy. We will flesh out the Night's King archetype by doing what we usually do, by identifying characters who seem to be playing into that archetype and then examining their symbolism and comparing them to each other, and by thinking about them as metaphors for flying space objects. As we do all of that, we can compare what we find to what we've already learned about Aegon the Conqueror, Rhaegar, Knight's King and of course Azor Ahai. Stannis is the logical place to begin, since I've already cited him as an example of someone who shows us both Azor Ahai and Knight's King symbolism. So here you go, Brendan Beefish. It's the mythical astronomy treatment of Stannis Baratheon, or should I say Satanis. So let me quickly say thanks to George R. R. Martin for writing the novels. Thanks to John Walsh of the John Walsh Guitar YouTube channel for our theme music. And let's all welcome back Martin Lewis, who has once again given us his amazing vocal performances for the book quotes. Thanks to all of our loyal Patreon supporters who have gobbled up all the available Zodiac slots and most of the Guardian of the Galaxy slots with their tremendous support. And as a result, I have created some new Patreon reward tiers. You can now join the Long Night's Watch and be resurrected as a green zombie. Or you can become another and walk the woods as a cold white shadow. Or... You can even become the envy of every half-mad Targaryen and transform yourself into a dragon. Check out LuciferMeansLightbringer.com and click on the Patreon tab for more information. And as always, that's also the place to find the matching text to this podcast. A blue-eyed king raised a red sword. This section is sponsored by our newest Guardian of the Galaxy patron, Nienna the Wise, the Persephoenix, Guardian of the Celestial Ice Dragon, whose words are, from sorrow, wisdom. And by sign, the Poem on Two Feet, Mother of Muses, Rider of the Dragon Sega, and Guardian of the Celestial Swan. I've been mentioning this curious mystery about Stannis in pretty much every Moons of Ice and Fire episode. Why is this guy, who's running around with a burning sword and calling himself Azor Ahai Reborn, acting so much like Knight's King? You guys are familiar with the basics. Stannis wields a burning sword he calls Lightbringer and did the little faux Lightbringer forging ritual on Dragonstone. And of course, he's straight up named as Azor Ahai Reborn himself by Melisandre. Throughout the entire story, Stannis wears a crown of red gold with points fashioned in the shape of flames. And as we saw last time, he dreams of a man he believes to be himself, wearing a crown of actual fire. Both of these are clear allusions to the origin of the golden king's crown as a symbol of the sun's rays, and of the king wielding the divine authority of the sun god. As the story progresses, we also find Stannis focused on fighting the others, with a sincerity matched only by Jon Snow and the true brothers of the Night's Watch. And all of this matches the myths of Azor Ahai as a warrior who fought against the dark. On the other hand, though, Stannis is also a rebel king who set himself up at the Wall, at least according to everyone not loyal to Stannis, just as the Night's King of Legend set himself up as a rebel king at the Nightfort. Stannis, infamously, takes the Nightfort as his seat, just as Night's King did, and just to make sure we notice the parallels. Legend says Night's King was thrown down by the Stark of Winterfell and the original Jorman, the first king beyond the Wall. Or said another way, Night's King was remembered as having warred against two people, the Lord of Winterfell and the king beyond the Wall. Stannis does this too, though with better results so far. That's right, Stannis first wars against Mance Raider when he was the king beyond the Wall, and when we last left him, he was headed south to fight the temporary Lord of Winterfell, Ramsay Bolton. Most importantly, and this was the subject of Moons of Ice and Fire 1, Shadowheart Mother, the succubus-like process by which Melisandre draws from Stannis' life fires to make the black shadows with burning hearts, that we like to call the Shadow Babies, seems to be a temperature and color-inverted facsimile of Night's Queen, taking the seed and soul of Night's King to make the white shadow others. That's probably the longest sentence in this podcast, all right. The most straightforward way to explain Stannis' blend of Azor Ahai and Night's King symbolism is simply that Azor Ahai, the guy with the burning sword, is also Night's King in some sense. And when I say in some sense, I mean, of course, that it could be a father-son or brother-brother or even an evil uncle type of relationship. Or perhaps they may simply be of the same line and thus share the same Azor Ahai flaming sword archetype. I think the relationship must be very close, though, or else it really doesn't make sense to show us characters who manifest both knight's King and Azor Ahai Reborn symbolism. Now, with all this in mind, let's take a look at the very first description of Stannis that we get in the books, from Cressen's prologue chapter of A Clash of Kings.
3: There was a single chair in the room, carefully positioned in the precise place that Dragonstone occupied off the coast of Westeros, and raised up to give a good view of the tabletop Seated in the chair was a man in a tight-laced leather jerkin and breeches of rough-spun brown wool. When Maester Crescent entered, he glanced up. I knew you would come, old man, whether I summoned you or no. There was no hint of warmth in his voice. There seldom was. Stannis Baratheon, Lord of Dragonstone, and by the grace of the gods rightful heir to the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, Was broad of shoulder and sinewy of limb, with a tightness to his face and flesh that spoke of leather cured in the sun, until it was as tough as steel. Hard was the word men used when they spoke of Stannis, and hard he was. Though he was not yet five and thirty, only a fringe of thin black hair remained on his head, circling behind his ears like the shadow of a crown. His brother, the late King Robert, had grown a beard in his final years. Maester Cresson had never seen it, but they said it was a wild thing, thick and fierce. As if in answer, Stannis kept his own whiskers cropped tight and short. They lay like a blue-black shadow across his square jaw and the bony hollows of his cheeks. His eyes were open wounds beneath his heavy brows. A blue as dark as the sea by night.
2: Despite his Solar King status, Stannis' voice has no warmth, and despite the red-gold crown of twisted flames he likes to wear, we can see here the implication of another kind of crown, the shadow crown of the Dark Solar King. Stannis has a blue-black shadow on his face, and his eyes are a blue as dark as a sea by night. Again, this is all implying darkness and nighttime, and there's a companion line a few chapters later when Stannis and Melburn the 7 that says Stannis watched impassively his jaw hard as stone under the blue-black shadow of his tight-cropped beard. The description of Stannis's blue eyes as opened wounds implies blue blood, and blue blood reminds us of the others of course. The combination of all this shadow talk with the color blue also reminds us of the others. Absolutely. And so we can see that Stannis's knight's king symbolism was there right from the beginning, even before Melisandre ever called him Azor Ahai reborn and had him draw a sword from the fire. The other noticeable thing is the description of Stannis as hard. His skin is like steel and his jaw is as hard as stone. And there's other descriptions in the series that complement this. I think the description of Stannis's fake Lightbringer from A Dance with Dragons actually encapsulates Stannis' personal
3: symbolism nicely. Stannis Baratheon drew Lightbringer. The sword glowed red and yellow and orange, alive with light. Jon had seen the show before, but not like this. Never before like this. Lightbringer was the sun made steel. We know what it means
2: for the sun to be made into steel, that's when the moon drinks the fire of the sun and gives birth to the sun's fiery meteor sword children. Since those black lightbringer meteors are the children of sun and moon, they can be thought of as a transformed or reborn sun, and thus the sun made into steel and stone. This is why the second sun symbol motif works so well. The lightbringer meteors light up the sky like a second sun, and on a symbolic level, they represent the sun of the sun. The sun made steel. The description of the Red Temple in Volantis complements this idea
3: perfectly. Three blocks later, the street opened up before them onto a huge torch-lit plaza, and there it stood. Seven save me, that's got to be three times the size of the great sept of Baelor. An enormity of pillars, steps, buttresses, bridges, domes, and towers flowing into one another as if they had all been chiseled from one colossal rock. The temple of the Lord of Light loomed like Aegon's high hill. A hundred hues of red, yellow, gold, and orange met and melded in the temple walls, dissolving one into the other, like clouds at sunset. Its slender towers twisted ever upward, frozen flames dancing as they reached for the sky, fire turned to stone.
2: Fire turned to stone. That's basically another way of saying the sun made steel, and obviously it makes sense to see these descriptions pinned on Stannis' Lightbringer and the Red Temple, since those two things define a large part of who Stannis has become. Stannis is a reborn solar king turned hard as stone and steel, but as we've said many times, the reborn sun is a dark sun, the dark solar king figure. That's who Stannis is. His incarnation of the archetype emphasizes the solar king's turn towards darkness. As we discussed at the beginning of the last episode, the dark sun or night sun symbolizes two related things. The dark sunless sky, or the eclipsed sun, you might say, and the black moon meteors which brought the darkness of the long night. If the regular sun wields Lightbringer the Comet as his sword, then the dark sun can be thought of as wielding the black moon meteors as his sword. But you can also think of the black sun and the black meteors as basically the same person or same symbol, since sword and swordsmen are one and the same, especially in A Song of Ice and Fire terms. Now in regards to Stannis, the symbolic descriptions of his being like stone and iron and steel basically make him the black meteor component of the dark reborn sun. Imagine his crown of fire and shining sword as the ring or nimbus of fire that engulfs a falling meteor. His shadow crown and the other shadow language, meanwhile, tell us the truth about the meteors as darkness bringers. Something that we'll learn today is that one of the main features of these combined zorhai knights' King figures is that they tend to combine ice and fire symbolism, and Stannis certainly does this. We just saw that Stannis pairs the flaming sword and fiery crown symbols with blue blood and blue shadow symbols that remind us of the others, and then we have Danny's vision of Stannis from the House of the Undying.
3: Glowing like sunset, a red sword was raised in the hand of a blue-eyed king who cast no shadow.
2: Glowing red swords and red sunsets are recognizable Azor Ahai symbolism, while blue eyes can only remind us of the others. And yes, Stannis's eyes are obviously a natural blue, but people's appearances in dreams and visions are usually defined by their personal symbolism. The blue-eyed king with the red sword is a kind of archetype or sub-archetype, and it's vaguely suggestive of an other wielding lightbringer. It might compare to John dreaming of being armored in black ice with a sword that burns red in his fist. Both visions, Danny's vision of Stannis and John's dream, combine ice and fire in a tantalizing way that we don't quite understand yet. But we will certainly try to figure it out by the end of this episode. Whatever it means, we can at least see that once again Stannis likes to pair Zorahai dark solar king symbolism the sun in the red sword, with knight's King other symbolism, blue eyes, and his being shadowless from creating magical shadow children. Again, I will say that I think the reason that this is so is that it was the guy with the burning red sword, whom we think of as Azor Ahai, who was responsible for creating the Others. Now, ask yourself, does Stannis do anything that might symbolize the creation of the Others? Well, as we've said many times, His creation of the Shadow Babies with Mel is a temperature-and-color-inverted version of Making the Others. We know that. But if you've read the Weirdwood Compendium series, you know that there is at least one more depiction of Stannis Making the Others. It happens during the battle for Deepwood Mott, when Stannis attacks Asha's Ironborn with the warriors of the mountain clans of the North. Those mountain clan warriors dressed up like trees, and this caused Asha to serve up the all-important line about the tale she had heard as a child about the Children of the Forest and their battles with the First Men when the green seers turned the trees to warriors. This is a legend which might be a part of the origin story of the Others, one which speaks to the the Weirwood-slash-Children-of-the-Forest component of the creation of the Others process, as we've mentioned before. When Asha encountered her final Northman, his axe shivered her shield, if you recall, as if his axe were made of ice. That Northman turned out to be Morgan Little, Whose house sigil is a green tree line on a snow white background with three pine cones? The sigil's combination of snow and trees complements the idea of turning the trees into warriors as a description of making the others, since it associates Morgan of the Chiliacs Axe with both trees and snow. Taken together, the impression is created that Stannis has turned the trees into cold northern warriors, like the Night King creating the others. These cold northern tree warriors fight for the blue eyed king with the red sword, sending us the message that it was indeed Azor High who played a part in the creation of the others. All right, now let's have a look at Stannis' Lunar Queens of Ice and Fire, and it's not hard to tell who is who. Naturally, Melisandre serves as his Fire Moon Queen, which makes Celisse his Ice Moon Queen, and indeed, the symbolism seems to agree with this. The following line is from Asha Greyjoy's A Dance with Dragons chapter
3: titled The King's Prize. Asha would have called them king's men, but the other Stormlanders and Crownlands men named them queen's men, though the queen they followed was the red one at Castle Black, not the wife that Stannis Baratheon had left behind at Eastwatch by the sea. Melisandre
2: is Stannis's red queen. That seems pretty straightforward. And there's a matching passage from John Snow in A Dance with Dragons.
3: Lady Melisandre wore no crown, but every man there knew that she was Stannis Baratheon's real queen, not the homely woman he had left to shiver at Eastwatch by the sea. Talk was. The king did not mean to send for Queen Selyse and their daughter until the night fort was ready for habitation. John felt sorry for them. The wall offered few of the comforts that Southern ladies and little highborn girls were used to, and the Night Fort offered none. That was a grim place, even at the best of times.
2: As you can see here, Stannis is thought of as having two queens, and Mel is the red one, who's obviously associated with fire. Selise, meanwhile, is not happy being left behind to shiver at Eastwatch, and wants to move on to the Night Fort, Stannis' official seat as quickly as she can. That's a pretty good start for Selyse's icy Night's Queen symbolism, and of course you know it goes further. The sigil of House Florent, which is the house of Selyse's birth, is certainly noteworthy here. A red fox in a circle of blue flowers on ermine. Blue flowers obviously remind us of Lyanna's blue winter roses, and they're even in a ring or crown shape, like Lyanna's blue rose crown, helping to reinforce the identification of Selyse as Stannis's Ice Moon Queen just as Lyanna is Rhaegar's Ice Moon Queen. We also notice that it's a circle of a dozen blue flowers, to be specific, representing perhaps the first group of twelve others. The red fox would symbolize Night's King Azor Ahai, which is Stannis in this case, since red and black are the colors of Azor Ahai and the black dragon archetype. Consider this sigil to be similar to when Rhaegar had Lyanna's wreath of blue roses on the tip of his black lance. It's the same image, except swapping black for red. One blue rose crown is penetrated by a red fox, the other one by a black lance, in other words. In A Dance with Dragons, when the wildlings come through the wall, there is a feast and a bit of a dance breaks out. I think this is one of those occasions when George is slyly making a double entendre
3: out of the word others to talk about the White Walkers. Check it out and see what you think. Between Courses Sir Axel Florent led Queen Selice out onto the floor to dance. Others followed, the queen's knights first, partnered with her ladies. Sir Bruce gave Princess Shireen her first dance, then took a turn with her mother. Sir Narbert danced with each of Selice's lady companions in turn. Ice Queen
2: Selice goes on to the floor to dance, and then the others followed, with those others being her knights. A moment later, Axel Florent is pressing John about the whereabouts of
3: Val, as this is the period of time when she is gone north of the wall. Florent's face grew flushed with anger. So it is true, you mean to keep her for yourself. I see it now. The bastard wants his father's seat. The bastard refused his father's seat. If the bastard had wanted Val, all he had to do was ask for her. You must excuse me, sir, he said. I need a breath of fresh air. It stinks in here. His head turned. That was a horn. Others had heard it too. The music and the laughter died at once. Dancers froze in place, listening. Even Ghost pricked up his ears. Did you hear that? Queen Selice asked her knights.
2: Others had heard it too. The dancers that froze in place, that is. Recall that dancing language is used when Sir Waymar fights the others in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. That horn blast is the one which heralds the return of Val, who, as we're about to see, is another Ice Queen, spoiler alert, so naturally it makes everyone freeze. The point is that Celice's knights should stand in for the others, so the potential others' double entendres here are highly suspicious. The fact that her queen's men worship R'hllor, but yet are the others who froze in place might be intended as a clue about the others having a fiery heritage, as I've been suggesting. In A Clash of Kings, when Axel Florent's brother Alistair is imprisoned beneath Dragonstone, he asks for the help of Ice Queen Selyse and then the others in the same breath, and we get more clues about the symbolism of House Florent.
3: Axel, the prisoner said desperately, for the love you bear me and hand me. You cannot do this. I'm no traitor. He was an older man, tall and slender, with silvery-grey hair, a pointed beard, and a long, elegant face twisted in fear. Where is Célice? Where is the Queen? I demand to see her. The others take you all. Release me! The long, elegant,
2: silvery-grey Alistair Florent of the Dozen Blue Flowers sigil is asking for the Ice Queen to save him, and then, failing that, he's asking the others to strike down his enemies. That actually makes perfect sense, according to our theory about the icy corpse queen making the others. Now, when John and Val go to see Selise in her temporary chambers at Castle Black in a dance with the dragons, John notes the commander of Selise's guard.
3: Commanding them was Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, clad in his knightly raiment of white and blue and silver, his cloak a spatter of five pointed stars.
2: It's Sir Patrick of King's Mountain, who is apparently symbolizing another, with his white and blue and silver coloring, the three colors of the ice moon, essentially, and his blue star decorations. They are even spattered like blood. Blue blood, that would be, like the others have. That means that his standing guard outside of Celisa's chambers is roughly equivalent to the King's Guard of the White Shadows, who stand guard outside the Tower of Joy, protecting their own ice moon queen, Liana. Sir Patrick is immediately besotted with Val, which is understandable, as she is, like Selyse, a knight's queen figure. Check out the next lines about this.
3: When presented to Val, the knight sank to one knee to kiss her glove. You are even lovelier than I was told, princess, he declared. The queen has told me much and more of your beauty.
1: How odd, when she's never seen me.
3: Val patted Sir Patrick on the head.
1: Up with you now, Sir Kneeler. Up, up.
3: She sounded as if she were talking to a dog. The Others are something like the
2: dogs of the Night's Queen. Perhaps the wolves of the Night's Queen is more apt, and so Val is treating the Other-like knight as her dog, to hilarious effect. John has to try hard not to laugh, as a matter of fact. Anyway, that's the deal with Stannis's two queens, Melisandre and Selyse. One is very hot, and the other is very cold. Stannis himself is a dark solar king, showing us both the Zorahai reborn and Night's King symbolism, and he fits the pattern of a solar king with lunar queens of ice and fire. He wields Lightbringer, and creates the others in different symbolic ways. He starts off ruling a dragonstone, symbol of the fire moon and former seat of dragonlords, and then later takes the Nightfort as his seat, the first castle on the wall whose oldest history is the story of the Night's King. Based on what we've learned of how Martin uses his archetypes and how he creates echoes of the past in the characters and events of the present, Stannis' symbolism seems to be leading us towards the conclusion that there is some serious overlap between Night's King and Azor Ahai, particularly the death-associated post-transformation Azor Ahai. Evil Azor Ahai, as we like to say. That's the same conclusion that we drew from the parallels between Aegon the Conqueror and Night's King, and we're only going to find more evidence for this as we go. That's especially true with our next Azor High Reborn slash Night's King figure, who is literally a Blood of the Dragon person. Mayhaps his name was Azor. This section is brought to you through the Patreon support of two of our Zodiac patrons, Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, and Earthly Avatar of Celestial House Leo, and Blue Raven of the Lightning Peck. Earthly avatar of Heavenly House Gemini, whose words are, The way must be tried. Now before you throw down your headphones and say, Mayhaps his name was Brandon, you idiot! The Knight's King was a Stark! Yes, I agree. I suspect that just as John is both Stark and Blood of the Dragon, so too was Knight's King in some sense. There's your asterisk in some sense clause. Even Stannis has a little dragon blood for that matter, and in fact, if we consider further, House Baratheon was formed when a blood-of-the-dragon person from Valyria, Aegon's probable bastard brother Oris Baratheon, joined up with a first-man house from the Dawn Age, which is, of course, House Durrandon. The Starks may have a similar tale, one that combines the blood of the dragon with the blood of the ancient first men, and that's something we'll talk about in a future Moons of Ice and Fire episode. Now, just like Stannis... John is a dark solar king, black was always his color, who combines the symbolism of Azor High and Night's King, and he too has a pair of symbolic lunar wives of ice and fire. We're going to consider John as the product of Rhaegar and Lyanna in the next episode, but right now, we're just going to think about John on his own. First off, John's Azor High reborn bona fides are well established in what has come to be called his Azor High dream
3: from A Dance with Dragons. Burning shafts hissed upward, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow! an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armoured in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead men reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. It's not just the
2: simple fact that John dreams of wielding a burning red sword, it's the fact that he dreams about slaying his love Ygritte with that burning red sword, and about being a knight's watchman defending the wall with that burning red sword, and about defending it against foes who need to be killed again, like the Whites, and who scuttle up the ice like spiders, like others climbing the wall with their ice spiders. When a guy with a hero's journey arc, like John, dreams of something like this, I think you can take it pretty much at face value. It's an indication of Jon's destiny as one of the primary heroes of the story, and more specifically, that he's the most likely candidate to wield a true Lightbringer sword before the story is over, if anyone is. Then we have the clue about Melisandre seeking glimpses of Azor Ahai Reborn in her fires, thinking that this would be Stannis, but seeing only Jon Snow instead. It's a pretty clear hint to Melisandre, and us readers, that Jon Snow is indeed R'hllor's chosen, Azor Ahai Reborn. As always, I'll add the caveat that the same thing applies to Danny, of course, and I see them as the two most important Azor Ahai reborn people in the story. Maester Aemon seems to sense it about John as well, encouraging John to read the passages of Colloquo Votar's Jade Compendium, which speak of Azor Ahai. Prophecy aside, there's the simple reality that John is the number one person concerned with stopping the others and fighting the Long Night. I mean, whatever you think of prophecies, visions, and the hunches of old blind men. John is simply the man in charge of the wall and the watch. At least he was until he was murdered by his brothers. We'll have to see what happens next. Now, we haven't seen John's resurrection in the books yet, but you can be sure it's going to be chock full of Zorahai reborn symbolism. That's one of those scenes from The Winds of Winter which we mythical astronomers will be extra jazzed to read, knowing what kinds of things to look for. I bet as you read it, you'll be hearing my voice in the back of your head going, oh, there's the burning black blood to indicate fire transformation, and there's the second sun symbolism, and that sort of thing. As for John playing the knight's king role, well, he's Lord Commander of the Knight's Watch, which is a good start, and he arguably breaks many of his vows throughout his plot arc, specifically the one about not taking a wife. And please don't disrespect your grits memory by saying John didn't take her as a wife because he did. Yes, that's right. John and Knights King are both commanders who are notoriously bad at not falling in love with women they find north of the wall. As John muses to himself in A Clash of Kings, it was easy to lose your way beyond the wall. John did not know that he could tell honor from shame anymore or right from wrong. Cersei also declares John a rebel to the throne, and although that's obviously a political move on Cersei's part, it still matches the Knights King's story of a rebellious lord commander of the Watch. And if you ask the mutineers who killed Jon, he was breaking the vows in spirit by letting the wildlings through the wall and by planning to take them to attack Winterfell. Moving right along, we know that Night's King made white shadows with the Night's Queen, Aegon the Conqueror was followed around by his white shadow king's guard, which Visenya made for him, and Jon too is followed around by a white shadow, his direwolf Ghost, who is called a white shadow or pale shadow on many occasions. Ghost has some important differences from the others, though, notably red eyes and not blue, but he is nevertheless a white shadow guardian of Jon, the black-clad solar king. That's a match for Night's King, as well as Aegon and Rhaegar, and all the other Targaryen kings, all of whom liked to be surrounded by white shadows. Jon's Night's King symbolism really kicks into gear in this passage from A Storm of Swords, when Jon is sent north of the Wall against his will to try to kill Mance Raider.
3: The wind was blowing wild from the east, so strong the heavy cage would rock whenever a gust got in its teeth. It skirled along the wall, shivering off the ice, making John's cloak flap against the bars. The sky was slate grey, the sun no more than a faint patch of brightness behind the clouds. Across the killing ground, he could see the glimmer of a thousand campfires burning, but their light seemed small and powerless. "'against such gloom and cold. "'A grim day.' "'John Snow wrapped gloved hands around the bars "'and held tight as the wind hammered at the cage once more. "'When he looked straight down past his feet, "'the ground was lost in shadow, "'as if he were being lowered into some bottomless pit. "'Well, death is a bottomless pit of sorts,' he reflected. "'And when this day's work is done, "'my name will be shadowed forever.' Bastard children were born from lust and lies, men said. Their nature was wanton and treacherous. Once John had meant to prove them wrong, to show his lord father that he could be as good and true a son as Rob. and made a botch of that. Rob had become a hero king. If John was remembered at all, it would be as a turncloak, an oath and a murderer. He was glad that Lord Edard was not alive to see his shame. Turncloak,
2: oathbreaker, murderer, wanton and treacherous, name forever shadowed. This could be the Knight's King we're talking about, as John is lowered into the abyss. His inner monologue of shame and regret may have even fit well in the mouth of Knight's King at some point. As for John's brother Rob, not only is he a hero king, he's specifically the king in the north slash king of winter. Once again, I'll remind you that according to legend, Night's King also had a brother who was the King of Winter, Brandon the Breaker, one of the two men who brought down Night's King. I would say it could just as easily be a father-son relationship instead of a brother-brother between Night's King and Brandon the Breaker, but the safe bet is that there is some sort of blood relation there. And the point is that having a brother who is a Stark King is another parallel between Jon and Night's King. The other person to help throw down Night's King was, of course, Jormun, the King Beyond the Wall. And the person John is on his way to try to murder while he thinks of his brother the King of the North is... Mance Rader, the King Beyond the Wall. Mance, incidentally, is a bit of a father figure to John for a time, and famously shares some amount of symbolism with Rhaegar, John's biological father. Down, Dinfoil, down! Shush! Sit! Actually, there's an even more clear match to the Night's King myth than that. John does the same thing as Stannis, in that he actually fights, or plans to fight, both the King Beyond the Wall and the Lord of Winterfell. In A Storm of Swords, John is among those leading the defense of the Wall against the wilding army of King Beyond the Wall Mance Raider. This is actually where he's first told, The Wall is Yours, Jon Snow, by Aemon Targaryen. So even though John isn't Lord Commander yet, he's effectively the acting Lord Commander during this battle against the King Beyond the Wall, who, by the way... Claims to have the same horn that Jorman once carried, making it an even better echo. As for fighting the Lord of Winterfell, well, you'll probably remember that right before he was mutinied, John was trying to lead a force against Winterfell and the imposter King of the North, Ramsay Bolton, as Stannis did before him. So there you go. During his Armored in Black Ice Azora High Dream, John also sees himself decapitating Rob and declaring himself the Lord of Winterfell which again places John as a Night's Watch commander warring against the Stark in Winterfell, just like Night's King. All right, now check out this angle. Of Night's King, it is said that with strange sorceries, he bound his sworn brothers to his will. So we have to think, does this apply to John or Stannis for that matter? Well, ask yourself, do either of them use any kind of magic to win the loyalty of their followers? Actually, yes, they both do although neither is, you know, using mind control or something like the myth would seem to imply at first glance. However, Stannis is quite obviously using magic to not only impress, but to motivate his followers, who see his struggle for the throne as an existential one, where the ultimate players are gods and demons, and the fate of the world hangs in the balance. Stannis, with his magic sword and magic red priestess, has convinced his followers that he is not only the rightful king and a good commander and all that, but that he is in fact the lord's chosen the man to fight the darkness and the others with a magic sword, and perhaps even dragons if they could just perform the right kind of horrible blood magic sacrifice to wake them from stone. As you can see, Stannis could certainly be said to be using sorcery to bind his followers to him and to establish his authority. And then we have Jon, who won the election for Lord Commander when a talking raven flew out of a kettle and landed on his shoulder and basically declared him the winner. Definitely no magic there. Everyone knows he's a warg, and wise rangers like Corn Halfhand and Lord Commander Mormont are quick to encourage or even make use of John's gifts. He's a warg, descended of an ancient magical bloodline, with a giant magical white wolf and a magical black sword. Don't forget all Valyrian steel swords are made with sorcery and are therefore magic swords. And you better believe that all of that plays into everyone else looking at John as the logical one to lead the Watch." So, it's somewhat similar in both cases, though Stannis is a bit more obvious. Both John and Stannis use magical powers and magical artifacts to establish their authority. This is certainly the kind of thing that could, hundreds and even thousands of years later, be remembered in myth as binding their brothers to their will with strange sorceries. Okay, time to get down to business. Let's talk about John's ladies, the Lunar Queens. As a proper solar king, dark though he may be, John does have two lady loves that fit the love triangles of ice and fire pattern. The Fire Moon bride would be Ygritte, of course, with her kissed by fire hair and tragic death via an arrow to the heart, which is similar to Nissanissa Nissa taking Lightbringer to the heart. And you'll recall that although it wasn't John's arrow that killed her, in his nightmares it was. Of course, I just mentioned that John kills her with a flaming red sword in his Azora High Dream, which reinforces the message. You may also recall the scene in the Frostfangs from A Clash of Kings where John first meets Ygritte. Her campfire with the wildlings in the past looked like a red star to John and company at the base of the mountain. When he climbed to meet the red star, he did a bunch of Lightbringer forging stuff with Ygritte. Namely, he came very close to executing her with Longclaw, but instead did something that was later interpreted as stealing Ygritte and thus implying his intent to marry or partner with her. That's the sex and sword play, dual-edged Lightbringer motif that we've been pointing out since episode one, so I assume everyone is well familiar with that. We're actually going to talk a bit more about Ygritte's death in the future when we're thinking about the Weirwoods again, but for now, we can stick with only a brief mention of her as we've covered her several times before. She's Jon's first love. She's only described as kissed by fire a thousand and one times. And she is Jon's firemoon queen. Jon's icemoon queen is not as obvious, but consider that when Stannis offers John the chance to be legitimized as John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, he's offered Val's hand in marriage. And Val is an obvious winter queen, as we see in a dance with dragons.
3: Then Ghost emerged from between two trees, with Val beside him. They look as though they belong together. Val was clad all in white, white woolen breeches tucked into high boots of bleached white leather. White bearskin cloak pinned at the shoulder with a carved weirwood face. White tunic with bone fastenings. Her breath was white as well, but her eyes were blue. Her long braid the colour of dark honey. Her cheeks flushed red from the cold. It had been a long while since Jon Snow had seen a sight so lovely. Have you been trying to steal my wolf? he asked her.
2: John just asked Val, the Ice Moon Queen, if she was trying to steal his ghost. His wolf is named a ghost, after all. That's a very Night's Queen sort of thing to do, since it is said that Night's King gave her his soul when he gave her his seed. I don't know about you, but I think that was a really clever one by George here. Val really does make for a stunning Ice Queen. She has blue eyes, and the rest of her is white except for her hair, including her white polar bear skin that she wears. The weirwood brooch is a nice touch. It seems a clue about knight's Queen and weirwood magic, which I definitely think is a thing. Consider what's happening here. John is the Lord Commander, as knight's King was, and although John didn't spy Val from atop the wall, he is standing right in front of the wall when he sees this lovely pale woman with blue eyes who might have designs on stealing his ghost. That's a pretty good knight's King reenactment. Now, that last description of Val came when she was returning from a journey to find torment and the surviving wildlings from the battle with Stannis north of the Wall. And when she sets out on that journey a couple of weeks earlier, there is more Icy Moon Maiden symbolism, and it's preceded by a mention of an ice dragon.
3: The road beneath the Wall was as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon, and as twisty as a serpent. Dolorous Ed led them through with a torch in his hand. Mully had the keys for the three gates, where bars of black iron as thick as a man's arm closed off the passage. Spearmen at each gate knuckled their foreheads at John Snow, but stared openly at Val and her garren When they emerged north of the wall, through a thick door made of freshly hewn green wood, the wildling princess paused for a moment to gaze out across the snow-covered field where King Stannis had won his battle. Beyond, the haunted forest waited, dark and silent. The light of the half-moon turned Val's honey-blonde hair a pale silver and left her cheeks as white as snow. She took a deep breath. The air tastes sweet. My tongue is too numb to tell. All I can taste is cold. Cold? Val (laughs) laughed lightly.
1: No. When it is cold, it'll hurt to breathe. When the others come...
3: Night's
2: Queen had skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars, and also skin as cold as ice. Shuffle the words around ever so slightly, and we have these descriptions of Val, whose cheeks are as white as snow in the moonlight. Both ladies have skin compared to the moon, and to snow and ice, in other words, and Val even talks about the others in this scene, and only a few lines after the mention of the ice dragon in John's inner monologue, no less. The implication of Val being impervious to cold is interesting, and it continues a few lines later as Val rides off. This is Dollar said
3: speaking. "'I don't care what she says,' muttered Dollar said, as Val vanished behind a stand of soldier pines. "'This air is so cold it hurts to breathe. I would stop, but that would hurt worse.' He rubbed his hands together. "'This is going to end badly.'
2: So cold it hurts to breathe is the signature language of the presence of the others. Val uses the phrase here to describe the presence of the others, and that phrase is used when Sam and Gilly are attacked by whites, and Torman uses it to describe fighting the others, which he says is like fighting shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. is said is saying that it is already this cold, and that this portends Val failing in her mission. But Val corrects him and is unperturbed and in fact returns successful from the mission. She's less affected by the cold than the rangers, and she also seems to be able to wander the haunted forest and the lands beyond the wall with relative impunity. That's kind of the picture being painted here. Now, if you're picking up on the patterns so far, you might see that John has this excellent winter queen, night's queen figure in Val, and wonder, does John do anything with Val that symbolizes the creation of the Others, like Stannis does with the Northmen dressed like trees in the wolf's wood? Oh, man. Boy, does he ever. It's pretty well hidden, so don't feel bad if it's not leaping to mind. Okay, I'll tell you. So Val has these two scenes playing the Knight's Queen role, both revolving around this deal that John wants to make with the wildlings to let them through the wall. The thing is, when these wildlings actually do come through the wall, there is a megaton of symbolism that implies some of the wildlings as the others. I mean, it's actually really over the top, just the way we like it. First, John observes the hostages, one hundred boys between eight and sixteen.
3: The boys were going to a place that none had ever been before, to serve an order that had been an enemy of their kith and kin for thousands of years. Yet John saw no tears, heard no wailing mothers. These are winter's people, he reminded himself. Tears freeze upon your cheeks where they come from. Not a single hostage balked or tried to slink away when his turn came to enter that gloomy tunnel. Almost all the boys were thin, some past the point of gauntness, with spindly shanks and arms like twigs.
2: All right, so winter's people, with frozen tears and no fear. We see the trees turned into others' motif as winter's people have spindly shanks and arms like twigs. Then begins the parade of double entendres with the word
3: other. Other lads had bare paws on their boots and walked on top of the same drifts, never sinking through the crust.
2: That part about not sinking through the crust of the snow is noteworthy because, as Coldhand says, the white walkers go lightly on the snow. You'll find no prints to mark their passage.
3: We'll see this again in a moment. Other hostages were named as sons of Howd Wanderer, of Brog, of Devin Sealskinner, Kylag of the Wooden Ear, Mourner White Mask, the Great Walrus. The Great Walrus, truly, they have queer names along the frozen shore. The other hostages were from the frozen shore,
2: and the World of Ice and Fire tells us that the wildlings of the frozen shore worship gods of snow and ice, which sounds like white walker worship, perhaps along the lines of what we see with Craster. Thus, it makes sense to label their children as others, just as Craster's wives call the others Craster's sons. Notice also that these are the sons of at least two people, with names that allude to weirwoods or tree people. Morna a white mask, who wears a white weirwood mask, and Kyleg of the wooden ear, with a wooden ear kind of implying a wooden face. We actually see the rest of the folk from the frozen shore a moment later, and again we have an others double entendre.
3: After the riders came the men of the frozen shore. John watched a dozen of their big bone chariots roll past him one by one, clattering like rattleshirt, half still rolled as before. Others had replaced their wheels with runners. They slid across the snowdrift smoothly, where the wheeled chariots were foundling and sinking. The dogs that drew the chariots were fearsome beasts, as big as direwolves. Once again, we see that it is the chariots
2: labeled as the Others which go lightly on the snow without breaking the surface, just like the Others do. The implication of dire wolves pulling the chariots of the Others is pretty cool, implying a link between the Starks and the Others, which is like, tell me something I don't know, right? I'll also mention that Rattleshirt, whom the bone chariots are compared to, seems to symbolize a white walker himself, and one of the people he's with when John meets him threatens to make a cloak out of John's white shadow wolf, just so, you know, he can dress like a white shadow for Halloween. The next other's wordplay
3: again mentions Rattleshirt. A few were clad in stolen steel, dinted oddments of armor, looted from the corpses of fallen rangers. Others had armored themselves in bones, like Rattleshirt, all wore fur and leather.
2: This is all from the same chapter, let me remind you.
3: The next one is, frankly, disturbing. Amongst the stream of warriors were the fathers of many of Jon's hostages. Some stared with cold dead eyes as they went by, fingering their sword hilts. Others smiled at him like long-lost kin. Though a few of those smiles discomfited Jon Snow more than any glare, none knelt, but many gave him their oaths.
2: Weird. John and the Others are long-lost kin? Well, yeah. I mean, if there's any sort of connection between House Stark and the Others, then yes, John and the Others are like long-lost kin. In fact, I'd call this line a pretty good clue about the Others having a blood tie to House Stark. And again, we're going to do an entire episode on just how I think that happened very soon. And so you can start getting hyped for that. It's going to be about the last hero and Eldrick Chaser and stuff like that. Anyways, if you're keeping count... That's five other double entendres with strong supporting clues around them. Here are numbers six and seven.
3: By afternoon, the sun had gone, and the day turned gray and gusty. A snow sky, Tormund announced grimly. Others had seen the same omen in those flat white clouds. It seemed to spur them on to haste. Tempers began to fray. One man was stabbed. When he tried to slip in ahead of others who had been hours in the column, Toreg wrenched the knife away from his attacker, dragged both men from the press, and sent them back to the wildling camp to start again. The second others
2: line, one man was stabbed when he tried to slip in ahead of the others, simply labels the wildlings in line as symbolizing the others, which we have kind of already established anyway. The first one is especially creepy. While John and Torment are looking at a snow sky, we are told that others had seen the same omen in those flat white clouds. You bet the others see a snow sky as a time to attack. There might be a clue about John's birth triggering the awakening of the others, too. The others see a gray snow sky as an omen which spurs them on to haste. Well, relative haste. Like hasty for a glacier. Anyway, snow sky aside, just think about what we're seeing here. John Snow making a deal through Val the knight's queen that enabled all these symbolic others to pass through the wall. And isn't that what I'm claiming about the knight's king and queen? Not only that they made the others, but that they made the others that invaded during the long night, the ones who white-walked all over the armies of men, like we are told. I think this is the importance of this unbelievable others' wordplay in this chapter. John is the rebellious Lord Commander Knight's King, and through a pact negotiated with the Knight's Queen figure, who stole his ghost, he has facilitated the others to cross over into the lands of the living. Not only that, but Martin specifically sets up Val as John's Knight's Queen in the two scenes that lead up to this one, where John lets the other like wildlings pass the wall, and he had Val be the one that John gives the offer to. All right, I bet you didn't expect John and Val's symbolism to run that deep, did you? Well, neither did I. Fans of John John rejoice. You never know what you're going to find when you go digging into a song of ice and fire symbolism. In this case, we found more evidence for our theory about knights king and queen making others during the long night, which is always nice. Just to sort of put a bow on John's two lunar ladies, here is a nice
3: passage where John compares them to one another. The outside air seemed even colder than before. Across the castle... He could see candlelight shining from the windows of the king's tower. Val stood on the tower roof, gazing up at the wall. Stannis kept her closely penned in rooms above his own, but he did allow her to walk the battlements for exercise. She looks lonely, John thought. Lonely and lovely. Ygritte had been pretty in her own way, with her red hair kissed by fire. But it was her smile that made her face come alive. Val did not need to smile. She would have turned men's heads in any court in the wide world.
2: And there you have it, John's two queens. It's especially cool to see Ice Queen Val staring up at the wall, since the wall is, like Val, an analog of the Ice Moon. Notice also the theme of Val being locked away in a castle at the wall by a knight's King figure. Stannis in this scene, and earlier Axel Florent accused John of locking Val away for his own purposes. Remember the words of the Night's King legend. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, and then brought her back to the Nightfort and proclaimed her a queen. That is absolutely what happens with Val. She is taken captive by Stannis and declared the wildling princess by Stannis' men, even though the wildlings don't have anything resembling Westerosi concepts of royalty, and even though Jon thinks to himself that he told Stannis half a hundred times that she wasn't a princess. They even slap a bronze crown on Val's head. The line there was, They had crowned her with a simple circlet of dark bronze, yet she looked more regal in bronze than Stannis did in gold. Stannis quite literally took her captive and declared her a princess, which is very close to declaring her a queen. Alright, so I think you can see that John, like Stannis, has distinct lunar queens of ice and fire. Like Stannis, John has some pretty outstanding Night's King parallels— and he's combining those with trademark Flaming Sword Azor High Reborn symbolism. As I pointed out in Bloodstone Compendium 2, The Bloodstone Emperor Azor High, John also has several clear parallels to the Bloodstone Emperor myth, and that too sends us the same message. The Bloodstone Emperor, Knight's King, and the reborn version of Azor High are all part of one archetype, the Dark Solar King, and that is why we see all of these expressed in John. Let's wrap up this John as Night's King section by talking about the mythical astronomy of Night's King for a moment. Like I said at the top, the Dark Solar King has two components, the eclipsed and darkened sun and the black meteors, which are like the Dark Sun's sword or seed or child. John and Stannis, as very important Dark Solar King Night's King figures, play both of these roles. In the Stannis section, we saw that Stannis is described as stone and hard rock several times and there are more that I didn't list, which is Stannis playing the role of the black meteors. John does this too, as we'll see in a minute. But first, check out this awesome passage from Melisandre, which compares Stannis and John to each other as eclipsed people standing in someone else's shadow,
3: just like the sun was eclipsed to
2: start the long night.
3: They crossed the yard together, just the two of them. The snow fell all around them. She walked as close to John's snow as she dared close enough to feel the mistrust pouring off him like a black fog.
1: He does not love me, will never love me, but he will make use of me, well and good.
3: Melisandre had danced the same dance with Stannis Baratheon back in the beginning. In truth, the young Lord Commander and her king had more in common than either one would ever be willing to admit. Stannis had been a younger son living in the shadow of his elder brother, just as john snow bastard-born had always been eclipsed by his true-born sibling the fallen hero men had called the young wolf both men were unbelievers by nature mistrustful suspicious the only gods they truly worshipped were honor and duty it's fun to think about john walking around with a black
2: fog just sort of rolling off of him and following him around like a black ice version of the white mist that follows the others but the serious point to make here is that John and Stannis are both eclipsed, shadowed people. They are both solar kings, but their symbolism is telling us about the eclipsed sun, the darkened sun of the long night. Also notable is the fact that Melisandre is looking to form the same sort of relationship with John that she has with Stannis. And in another scene, she suggests making a shadow baby with John. That's knight's Queen's succubus behavior, and it again places John in the knight's king role. In that scene where she propositions John, the light of the moon kisses John and casts his shadow huge and black against the ice, casting shadows and making shadow babies with a sorceress at the wall. That's a definite Night's King parallel, and we'll break down those scenes at the wall with John and Mel in lots more detail in the RLJ episode next time. All right, so Stannis and John are both eclipsed and darkened Solar Kings. Stannis's stone and iron and steel descriptions show us Stannis as a meteor, and John has something similar going on. Meteors can be referred to as the hearts of fallen stars, and of course meteorites can be thought of as stones, so it's interesting to see that Sam actually implies a connection between John and Lady Stoneheart in this line from A Feast for Crows.
3: He could not blame Gilly for her grief. Instead, he blamed John Snow and wondered when John's heart had turned to stone. Once he asked Maester Eamon that very question, when Gilly was down at the canal, fetching water for them. When you raised him up to be Lord Commander, the old man answered.
2: Now perhaps it's just a turn of phrase to indicate John's hardening himself for command with no double meaning. But comparing John to Stoneheart does make a lot of sense if John is going to be resurrected via fire magic as Catelyn is. Catelyn has bone-white hair and eyes like two red pits burning in the shadows, and that's just how I think John might actually come out of his resurrection. White hair and red eyes, bone and blood, the coloring of his wolf and of the weirwoods. White hair would also make him look more like a Targaryen, too. Burning stone hearts are also potential meteor talk, as I mentioned. However, it's not stone that John is most often compared to, but dragonglass. It happens several times— Most notably, in A Storm of
3: Swords, when Stannis
2: tells Jon...
3: You may lack your father's honor, or your brother's skill in arms, but you are the weapon the Lord has given me. I have found you here, as you found the cache of dragonglass beneath the fist. And I mean to make use of you. Even Azor Ahai did not win his war alone. So not only is
2: John compared to a dragonglass knife... He's made analogous to a weapon that should be used in the fight against the others by a would-be Azor Ahai figure, Stannis. In this scene, Stannis plays the part of the Dark Sun, with Jon as the Dark Sun's black meteor sword. But as I said, sword and swordsman are really both part of the same Dark Solar King figure. So what we have here is two Dark Solar Kings forming like Voltron to create the entire picture. This is going to be especially important when we get to the RLJ episode, because it's all about the dragon locked in ice motif. The Night's King is like that black fire moon meteor dragon flying away from the explosion that darkened the sun. Specifically, it's the one which strikes the ice moon and embeds itself in the ice. Or you might say that it impregnates the ice moon, since the ice moon is analogous to Night's Queen. As I mentioned in Dawn of the Others, this black meteor dragon impacting the ice moon is what creates ice-moon meteors, which are analogous to the others, just as Night's King giving his seed to Night's Queen created the real others. That's why Night's King people like Stannis and Jon are often described in language that suggests them as stone, steel, dragon glass, and as knives or swords, all of which end up frozen or lodged in ice somehow, because it's a symbol of Night's King giving his seed to Night's Queen. That, I believe, is the explanation for Martin describing Stannis with all the blue shadow and blue-black language when we first see him. It reflects the reborn Dark Solar King being frozen. John expresses this in many ways, such as by being armored in black ice in his Azor Ahai dream, by going to live at the Wall at the very beginning of the story, or by his appearance in Bran's coma dream flyby of the known world, which ends with John, the Wall, and then the Heart of Winter.
3: He saw the wall shining like blue crystal, and his bastard brother John sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him.
2: Even Robert and Ned's famous A Game of Thrones clue about John's royal heritage, kings are a rare sight in the north. More likely they were hiding under the snow, places John as a dragon king hidden under the snow. This is the Dragon Locked in Ice motif, and it runs through all of Jon's storyline. I said at the beginning that the Night's King figures have some sort of ice and fire unity thing going on, and now you can start to see what that means. Night's King is a fiery guy who gave his soul to an icy sorceress and became a bit frozen in the process. Dancing Dragons Teach Astronomy this section is sponsored by Queen Cameron, Lady of the Twilight, Keeper of the Astral Cats, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Aries, and by Ash Rose, Queen of Sevens, Mistress of Mythology, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Taurus. Our search for more Knights King figures and more love triangles of ice and fire leads us to a peculiar place, hundreds of feet above the ground and in great peril. Yes, that's right, it's time for another dragon-on-dragon battle from the Targaryen Civil War, known as the Dance of the Dragons. These things are always full of mythical astronomy, and I try to slip them in when it fits the topic of discussion. This dragon fight will support the general two moons hypothesis by giving us a pretty great two moons diagram, and it will end with the crowning of the Night's King. So after much thought, I've decided that this is the place for it. I almost crammed it in the last episode, Visenya Draconis, because it will involve the hoary old Vagar, But that episode had a lot going on already, and it fits better here. So, Vagar in this dragon dance will be ridden by Aemond One-Eye, he of the blue star sapphire eye. That pairing creates a smashingly good ice dragon symbol, if you recall, by virtue of Aemond's blue star eye, and the fact that the hoary descriptor implies Vagar as a snow-white or frosty white dragon. Think of Hoarfrost, for example. The other two dragons in this fight are surprisingly easy to identify, so it's primed for mythical astronomy. As you probably guessed by now, this isn't going to be so much of a love triangle as it will be a triangle of dragon carnage, but it works basically the same way. The fight takes place at Rook's Rest in the Stormlands, where the lord of House Staunton, who is loyal to Renira and the blacks... Is besieged by the armies of Sir Criston Cole, who is loyal to the Greens, which is the side of King Aegon II and his brother Aemond One Eye. Lord Staunton's requests for support arrive in the form of a dragon and dragon lord. One of the best ones, in my opinion.
3: Nine days after Lord Staunton dispatched his plea for help, the sound of leather and wings was heard across the sea, and the dragon of melees appeared above Rook's Rest. The Red Queen, she was called, for the scarlet scales that covered her. The membranes of her wings were pink, her crest, horns and claws, bright as copper. And on her back, in steel and copper armor that flashed in the sun, rode Rhaenys Targaryen, the queen who never was. Sir Criston Cole was not dismayed. Aegon's hand had expected this, counted on it. Drums beat out a command. The archers rushed forward, longbowmen and crossbowmen filling the air with arrows and quarrels. Scorpions were cranked upwards to loose iron bolts of the sort that had once felled Meraxes in dawn. Mele suffered a score of hits, but the arrows only served to make her angry. She swept down, spitting fire to right and left, Knights burned in their saddles, as the hair and hide and harness of their horses went up in flames. Men at arms dropped their spears and scattered. Some tried to hide behind their shields, but neither oak nor iron could withstand dragon's breath. Sir Criston sat on his white horse, shouting, "Aim for the rider!" Through the smoke and flame, Malays roared. Smoke swirling from her nostrils, a stallion kicking in her jaws as tongues of fire engulfed him.
2: Here we have a red dragon whose name, Melis, has the same phonetic root as Melisandra, and Melisandre is, of course, one of our most important and vivid Firemoon Queens. Melis, the red dragon's nickname, the Red Queen, has also been applied to Melisandra, who was called Stannis' Red Queen by his soldiers, as we saw earlier. Meles is also compared to Meraxes in this passage, who is the dragon of Queen Rainies, and both Rainies and Meraxes are Firemoon symbols, as we learned last episode. Don't look now, but the rider of Melis, the Red Queen, is another Rainies. So we're right back to Firemoon symbolism once again. All in all, I'd say the Firemoon identification for Rainies, the Queen who never was, and Melis, the Red Queen, is fairly ironclad. Let's see what happens next.
3: Then came an answering roar. Two more winged shapes appeared. The king astride Sunfire, the golden, and his brother, Aemond, upon Vagar. Criston Cole had sprung his trap, and rainies had come snatching at the bait. Now the teeth closed round her.
2: At the risk of stating the obvious, the king is riding the dragon named after the sun, making him the Solar King. Aemond Blue Star Eye on Vagar is the Ice Dragon symbol, so he's the Ice Moon. The gang is all here. Fire Moon, Solar King, Ice Moon. Then the action heats
3: up. Princess Rainy's made no attempt to flee. With a glad cry and a crack of her whip, she turned melees toward the foe. Against Vagar alone she might have had some chance, for the Red Queen was old and cunning and no stranger to battle. Against Vagar and Sunfire together, doom was certain. The dragons met violently, a thousand feet above the field of battle, as balls of fire burst and blossomed, so bright that men swore later that the sky was full of suns. The crimson jaws of Meles closed round Sunfire's golden neck for a moment, till Vagar fell upon them from above. All three beasts went spinning toward the ground. They struck so hard that stones fell from the battlements of Rook's Rest half a league away. Cutting in briefly,
2: I'll just point out that the Fire Moon Dragon and the Sun Dragon collide first. And then the sky is full of suns. This is the second sun symbolism again. That's Azor Ahai and Nissa copulating to make dragon children. Little Azor Ahai rebornlings, the sons of the sun.
3: Those closest to the dragons did not live to tell the tale. Those farther off could not see, for the flame and smoke. It was hours before the fires guttered out, but from those ashes, only Vagar rose unharmed. Meles was dead, broken by the fall and ripped to pieces upon the ground. And Sunfire, that splendid golden beast, had one wing half torn from his body, While his royal rider had suffered broken ribs, a broken hip, and burns that covered half his body, his left arm was the worst. The dragon flame had burned so hot that the king's armor had melted into his flesh.
2: The Firemoon dragon and rider die, which is sad in terms of the story, but appropriate in terms of symbolism, since the Firemoon seems to have been destroyed. The sun dragon and rider are gravely wounded and weakened. This is the darkening and dimming of the sun during the long night. Check out the description of Sunfire when he later turns up at Dragonstone.
3: Sunfire's scales still shone like beaten gold in the sunlight, but as he sprawled across the fused black Valyrian stone of the yard, it was plain to see that he was a broken thing he who had been the most magnificent dragon ever to fly the skies of Westeros. The wing, all but torn from his body by melees, jutted from his body at an awkward angle, whilst fresh scars along his back still smoked and bled when he moved. Sunfire was coiled in a ball when the queen of her party first beheld him. As he stirred and raised his head, huge wounds were visible along his neck, where another dragon had torn chunks from his flesh. On his belly were places where scabs had replaced scales, and where his right eye should have been was only an empty hole, crusted with black blood.
2: Don't look now, but it's more one-eye symbolism for a solar dragon figure, this time an actual dragon. It's kind of like the dragon equivalent to our one-eyed friends Barrack and Bloodraven, essentially. Sunfire is broken, but still deadly. This does seem to be one aspect of the transformed Azor High character. That might also describe Jon Snow when he comes back from Resurrection. Jon is also a one-eyed figure, in a sense, because he has that eagle claw wound across one eye, even though he didn't actually lose the eye. It still works for symbolism. Even weirder, Sunfire's wounds here actually match the wounds that Jon takes at his assassination, basically perfectly, save for the fact that Jon doesn't have wings. Call it the John Snow Stigmata. Here's what I mean, and this will be a very tiny sidebar to the dragon battle, which we're not quite finished with. Okay, so Jon already has the scar across his eye to match Sunfire's wounded eye. Sunfire has a neck wound, which matches Jon's first knife wound during the mutiny, the neck wound that almost certainly struck his jugular vein.
3: When Wick Whittlestick slashed at his throat, the world turned into a grunt. Jon twisted from the knife, just enough so it barely grazed his skin. He caught me. When he put his hands to the side of his neck, blood welled between his fingers.
2: Sunfire's wounds across the belly are a match for John's next wound.
3: Then Bowen Marsh stood there before him, tears running down his cheeks. For the watch! He punched John in the belly. When he pulled his hand away, the dagger stayed where he had buried it.
2: Sunfire has smoking and bleeding wounds across his back, and that's a match for John's third knife wound. And check out John's blood smoking like a dragon's here.
3: John fell to his knees. He found the dagger's hilt and wrenched it free. In the cold night air, the wound was smoking. Ghost, he whispered. Pain washed over him. Stick them with the pointy end. When the third dagger took him between the shoulder blades... He gave a grunt and fell face first into the snow.
2: Sunfire's wounded eye socket is described as crusted with black blood. And of course, John and all the Night's Watchmen are euphemistically said to bleed black blood. Now, you guys know that hot, smoking black blood is the hallmark of one who has undergone fire transformation, as the Solar King does when he turns into the Dark Solar King or is reborn as the Dark Solar King. In other words, both John and Sunfire, with their identical wounds are described as having hot, smoking black blood, as Dark Solar King dragons should. It's worth noting the timing implied here with both Jon and Sunfire as it concerns the fall of the Long Night. Sunfire received his Jon Snow stigmata wounds when he killed the fire dragon, Melis, an act which symbolizes the beginning of the Long Night. John was assassinated just as winter falls, and just as the others are poised to begin their invasion. And I know they've been poised to begin their invasion for years now, but the next book is called The Winds of Winter, so I assume that it will actually be happening in short order. Now consider also that John is killed as a direct result of his letting those other-like wildlings through the wall, which also symbolized the invasion of the others. It's the same message. The Solar King transforms when the Long Night Falls. But as I said at the end of the last section, the Night's King version of the Dark Solar King seems destined to become locked in the ice and frozen. And I think we all remember the last line of John's assassination scene concerning the last knife wound that John took.
3: He never felt the fourth knife, only the cold.
2: John's dead body also seems foreshadowed to be placed in the ice cells. This is a depiction of the sun being frozen and hidden during the long night. There's a line in one of John's wolf dreams in A Dance with Dragons, which refers to the sun hiding in a cave of night when it isn't in the sky. And I think that's a good way to think about the reborn sun becoming lodged in the ice. Recall that John thinks of the tunnel that goes through the ice of the wall at Castle Black as being as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon. And the ice cells are very similar, since they're inside the ice of the wall. To put it simply, the wall is a symbol of the ice moon, So being inside the wall, or inside the belly of an ice dragon, is basically like being trapped inside the ice moon. And that's where John's corpse is symbolically headed, into one of those ice cells in the wall. Why? Because he represents the black meteor that lands in the ice moon. Hopefully this is beginning to make sense to you. He's the crow in the snow, in other words. Returning to the dragon battle at Rook's Rest, we find that Sunfire and his rider, King Aegon II, each mimic John being frozen and hidden in their own way. Sunfire is literally hidden. Everyone believed he was dead, actually, although it later turned out he had been hiding out on the far side of Dragonstone. And say, since Dragonstone is like a symbol of the Fire Moon and Sunfire is a symbol of the Sun, Sunfire being on the far side of Dragonstone is basically like being eclipsed by Dragonstone. Anyways, as for King Aegon, he loses himself in
3: pain and milk of the poppy. King Aegon II did not die, though his burns brought him such pain that some say he prayed for death. Carried back to King's Landing in a closed litter to hide the extent of his injuries, his grace did not rise from his bed for the rest of the year. Septons prayed for him Maesters attended him with potions of milk of the poppy But Aegon slept nine hours out of every ten Waking only long enough to take some meagre nourishment Before he slept again None was allowed to disturb his rest Save his mother the Queen Dowager And his hand, Sir Criston Cole His wife never so much as made the attempt So lost was Helena In her own grief and madness.
2: In the prologue of A Game of Thrones, the ranger Garrod gives us a poetic description of hypothermia, or of dying by hypothermia, I should say, and he describes it as like sinking into a sea of warm milk. So, sinking into a sustained milk-of-the-poppy dream state could serve as a pretty good metaphor for a solar king being frozen. Note also the bit about Aegon II being carried back to King's Landing in a closed litter to hide the extent of his injuries. It's a clear implication of the sun being hidden and weakened. So, what happens when the Fire Moon dies and the sun is weakened and hidden? And what happens when the Long Night falls, according to my developing theory? Well, the Night's King should take power, right? And indeed, the only ones to rise unharmed from the ashes of the impact zone of the Three Dragons are Vegar and Aemond One-Eye, the Ice Dragon and its rider. Not only does Aemond rise unharmed, he actually takes the place of his brother, the wounded Solar King.
3: You must rule the realm now, until your brother is strong enough to take the crown again, the king's hand told Prince Aemond. Nor did Sir Criston need to say it twice. And so, one-eyed Aemond the Kinslayer took up the iron and ruby crown of Aegon the Conqueror, it looks better on me than it ever did on him, the prince proclaimed. Yet Aemon did not assume the style of king, but named himself only protector of the realm and prince regent. Sir Criston Cole remained hand of the king.
2: That's right. The hand of the king was also a white shadow guard. Of course he thought the rider of the ice dragon should wear the crown. Kidding aside, here's what's going on. Sometimes, we see one character transform from a bright solar figure into a dark one. But Aegon and Aemond are actually combining to show us the two faces of the sun, the bright solar king and the dark solar king. Aegon, rider of Sunfire, the golden dragon, represents the bright solar king, and Aemond, who just so happens to wear night-black armor, chased with gold, represents the dark solar king, the Lion of Night, or Night's King. Now, if you've ever heard me talk about the actual Great Empire of the Dawn dual pantheon of the Maiden Maid of Light, who turned her back on the world and hid during the Long Night, and the Lion of Night, who ravaged the Earth during the Long Night, you'll know that I interpret this pair, the Maiden Maid of Light and the Lion of Night, in exactly the same way as Aegon and Aemond. The Maiden Maid of Light is the bright face of the sun, and her disappearance during the Long Night represents the disappearance of the sun while the Lion of Night inverts the usual solar lion symbolism and thus speaks of a dark sun and its black meteor children, exactly the ones who ravaged the earth during the long night. So just as the maiden hides when the Amethyst Empress is killed and the Lion of Night and Bloodstone Emperor take power, Aegon, the bright solar king, is wounded and hidden and sinks into a sea of warm milk of the poppy when Rhaenys and Melis are killed and Aemond One-Eye of the night-black armor Takes up the black crown. All hail, King Ice Dragon! So, Aemond is the Knight's King, and he's riding the Ice Dragon. So, what does that mean? Well, simple. Vagar is playing the Ice Moon role, and when the black armored Aemond rides Vagar, that can be seen as the Black Dragon Meteor becoming lodged in the ice. It's the same thing as Knight's King joining with Knight's Queen, and this is when Knight's King declared himself king when he chased and caught her and made her his queen. We can actually see this timing spelled out in more detail by the fact that Aemond One-Eye originally lost his eye, the one that he later filled with a blue star sapphire, on the same day that he claimed Vegar the ice dragon. Again, Aemond riding Vegar is like Night's King giving his seed to Night's Queen. So this sequence is basically showing us Night's King's eyes turning blue when he copulates with Night's Queen. It's not that hard to interpret the symbolism here. Knight's king transformed himself when he gave his seed and soul to Knight's queen. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Now remember Mel's line about John and Stannis both being eclipsed in the shadow of their elder brothers? Well, you can add Aemon to the mix as he's another second son who takes up his brother's crown. Stannis declares himself king after Robert dies and John will eventually be the king of winter like his older brother Rob, I believe. There's also a kinslaying motif here. Aemond One-Eye is also called Aemond the Kinslayer because he killed his nephew, Lucerys Valerion, at the start of the Dance of the Dragons. Stannis killed his brother Renly through the use of the Shadow Baby, and Jon has a much fainter echo of this in that he dreams of killing his brother Rob in that Azora high dream. Though, of course, Jon is not a Kinslayer in real life. Yet. If he comes back to life and murders any of his Night's Watch brothers, quote-unquote, maybe that counts. That leads to our next Night's King figure, and to a whole lot of eye-gouging talk. That's right, it's time for another one-eyed kinslayer, Euron Crow's eye. What, you didn't expect Euron Crow's eye to run up on our Moons of Ice and Fire episode? Well, he's a pirate. Pirates don't ask for permission, and surprise is kind of their thing. They're like the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, and amongst their weaponry are such diverse elements as fear and surprise. Fear? and surprise, and a fanatical devotion to the Pope, and a ruthless sufficiency. The Face of the Dark God This section owes a debt of gratitude to Sir Cletus Ironwood, reborn of the Never Lazy Eye, wrestler of bulls and guardian of the Celestial Stallion and Horned Lord. Enter Sir Morris Mayberry, the upright, climber of Jacob's Ladder and guardian of the Celestial Ghost whose words are, I drink and tweet things. As we've discussed before, while referencing Horus mythology, the ancient Egyptians saw the sky as the face of Horus, and the sun and moon were seen as his eyes. George is playing on this idea with his notion of a god's eye, which is a conjunction of the sun and the fire moon that looks like a great eye, one which is then blinded by the comet. You may recall that line from a Catlin chapter of A Clash of Kings, where she saw that the comet traced a path across the deep blue sky like a long scratch across the face of God. With the face of God obviously being the sky itself, and of course there are several great quotes about the moon being like an eye, or even the Valor's perception of the sun as the fiery eye of Valor. But the Lion of Night, Dark Solar King, is also like Horus. His face is the sky too, but... Specifically, it's the nighttime sky, and his eyes would presumably be the two moons, when they both existed, at least. The shadow cat, whose name is basically another way of saying cat of night or lion of night, shows this exact mythical astronomy diagram to John in A Clash of Kings.
3: Off in the darkness, a shadow cat screamed in fury, its voice bouncing off the rocks, so it seemed as though a dozen other cats were giving answer. Once, John thought he saw a pair of glowing eyes on a ledge overhead, as big as harvest moons.
2: This shadow cat is like a knight's king cat. A dozen other cats are created when the shadow cat's voice bounces off the rocks. John doesn't see the body of the shadow cat, only the eyes, which are like a pair of moons. This is exactly how I'm describing the sky face of the Lion of Night, or the Dark Solar King. The night sky with two moons for eyes. It's also like the representation of the Stranger of the Faith of the Seven that Catelyn sees in the Riverlands Sept right before Renly's murder. A black oval, a shadow with stars for eyes. The Stranger is clearly labeled as a Death God, so he's certainly an equivalent figure to the Lion of Night, and his Wanderer from Far Places moniker kind of makes him sound like a comet, a wandering star from far-off places. I'll also mention the only other character with eyes like a pair of moons, Roose Bolton, who has eyes as pale and strange as two white moons, which are also called two chips of dirty ice, or pale cold eyes, or simply eyes that were ice. That's ice moon talk for sure. Roose and his son Ramsay are both Knights Kingslash Evil Azora High figures, and although we don't have time for the Boltons in this episode, Roose's moon eyes do help me make an important point. Night's King and other Dark Solar King figures, like the Shadow Cat or the Stranger, are the right ones to have eyes like two moons, because their face is the night sky. It's the face of the Dark God, in other words. Night's King is associated with the Ice Moon, and that's why Ruse's eyes are like strange moons and also like ice. It's one thing to have eyes like a pair of moons, but where things really get interesting is with the one-eyed Night's King people. These folks have the opportunity to tell us about each moon individually, should Martin choose to do that sort of thing. (laughs) So look again upon the face of King Ice Dragon, Aemond One-Eye. The blue star gemstone in his right eye would stand for the ice moon and the others, of course, while his left eye is the traditional purple of Targaryen eyes, and would therefore seem to stand for the fire moon, which was the birthplace of dragons. If that's the case... Then the story of Aemond gaining a blue star eye when he claimed the symbolic ice moon dragon, Vagar, also tells us something about the ice moon. It tells us that it was awakened, or activated, when it was ridden by the Night's King. And yes, insert your dirty jokes here. But the picture really is clear. Vagar and Aemond's blue eye both represent the ice moon. So this story of Aemond claiming Vagar actually tells us about the impregnation of the ice moon from two different angles. Aemon's ice moon eye is transforming into a blue star, and that depicts the activation of the ice moon, and so does the very act of his riding the symbolic ice dragon, Vagar. And of course, they both happen at more or less the same time, because they're the same symbol. There are two other characters in the story whose eyes tell the story of the two moons, Sir Waymar Royce and Euron Greyjoy, and they will be lending support to our analysis of Aemon One-Eye, or else I wouldn't have included them, naturally. We're going to spend more time on Euron, so let's talk about Waymar first. Euron is a definite Night's King figure, while Waymar is more of a last hero type, journeying into the frozen lands and confronting the others, in the end, by himself, with his sword breaking from the cold like the last heroes. Of course, some believe that the last hero and Night's King are one and the same, but I plan to dive into that question in a different episode, so for now will simply observe that Waymar's face is doing a sky map thing which matches Aemond One-Eye and Euron. Okay, so Sir Waymar Royce can only be found in the prologue of A Game of Thrones, and although his tale is surprisingly tragic in retrospect when we realize that he was basically right about everything he was saying, even though he was kind of a little shit, his tale does do a fabulous job of depicting the awakening of the Others after the Fire Moon was destroyed. First, Weymar's sword snaps against the parry of the other, and he loses an eye.
3: When the blades touched, the steel shattered. A scream echoed through the forest night, and the longsword shivered into a hundred brittle pieces, the shards scattering like a rain of needles. Royce went to his knees, shrieking, and covered his eyes. Blood welled between his fingers,
2: Aria could tell you that needles can also be swords. So this rain of needles is really a storm of swords, a recognizable moon-meteor-shower symbol. A moment earlier, when the others draw first blood on Waymar, it says that Waymar's blood steamed in the cold, and the droplets seemed red as fire where they touched the snow. In other words, when he's first wounded, and then when his eyes are struck by one of the needles from his shattered sword, this is a fire-and-blood event and therefore represents the destruction of the Fire Moon. We find out later, when Waymar rises, that only one eye was put out by the sword needles.
3: Will rose, so Waymar Royce stood over him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. But his other eye, the right eye was open. The pupil burned blue, It saw. So, the
2: left eye would be the fire moon, put out with a sword needle when Waymar's blood was still like fire. The other eye, the right eye, would represent the ice moon, and indeed, it opens burning blue when the first moon eye is put out. By the way, I really think Martin chooses his wording very precisely here. Waymar's, quote, other eye is the blue one, just like the Carthine tale speaks of the moon which wasn't destroyed as the other moon which will one day kiss the sun too. The ice moon is the other moon. You got it? Clever wording aside, we can see how the eyes once again show us a sequence. The fire moon eye is blinded and bloodied by the broken sword needles, and shortly after, his other eye lights up with that cold blue star fire. It's almost like the activation of the other moon is a part of the fallout of the fire moon incident, just as the others came in the darkness created by the fire moon meteors impacting on the planetos. And just as Aemond One-Eye gained the Black Crown after the Firemoon Dragon and Firemoon Queen were killed at Rook's Rest. And just as Aemond's eye turned into a blue star when he claimed the Icemoon Dragon Vagar, And let's not forget Stannis. He claimed the crown only after his brother, Robert the Summer King, was sliced open and killed. We find much the same story with Euron eye. I covered some of this in the Caverns of Dragonglass YouTube video I did with History of Westeros. So again, I will refer you to that. But Euron's face is an even better sky map than Waymar's, and it shows the same sequence. And by the way, if you want to find that Caverns of Dragonglass video, just go to the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel, click on Playlists, and then click on the Collaborations with History of Westeros playlist, and you will find it. So first of all, Euron is easily established as a moon character in a line from the Forsaken chapter of the Winds of Winter, where Aaron Damphair recalls that, He had seen the moon floating on a black wine sea with a leering face that reminded him of Euron. As it turns out, the name Euron, in my opinion, seems likely to have been derived from Europa, who is both a Greek moon goddess and the name of one of the most famous moons of Jupiter. As it happens, Europa, the real moon of Jupiter, what scholarly people would call a Jovian moon, because Jupiter's called Jove also, it's a real ice moon. That's right as I'll talk about in detail in a future episode. Long story short, Europa is a moon covered in very cold water and ice, and that's what Euron is named after. At least, again, I think so. Roose Bolton has eyes like icy moons, and now we know that Euron could be named after, well, an ice moon. Indeed, Euron's face seems to tell the tale of the two moons. His right eye is blue, so we know which moon that is, and his left eye is his crow's eye, although it's also called his blood eye. That's the one he keeps covered with a patch, and as we're about to see, that's definitely the fire moon Eye. You'll notice that Waymar's blue eye was also his right one, and the same goes for and One-Eye. Not sure if that's intentional or if it's an accident, but I thought I'd point it out. If it is intentional, it may be alluding to certain occult beliefs about magic having a left-hand path and a right-hand path, with fire magic seeming to be aligned with the left-hand path. I know of at least one fantasy author, Raymond Feist, who makes overt use of this concept, so it could be that Martin is doing something similar, but with more subtlety. Or it could be coincidence, who knows. What I am more convinced of is the idea that the eyes of these three folks, Euron Crow's eye, Amund One-Eye, and Sir Waymar, are showing us the two moons. And although the theory doesn't depend on the right and left eyes being consistently associated with specific moons, it does seem to work out that way, for these three at least. In any case, let's talk about Euron's eyes. The patches Euron wears over his crow's eye slash blood eye are either black or red, and the eye itself is implied as being either black or red in many ways. It's implied as a black eye because the eyes of real crows are black, because Theon thinks of Euron's crow's eye as a black eye shining with malice, and because Makoro sees Euron's shadow in a dream as a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. Meanwhile, in that Forsaken chapter, it says that Euron showed the world his blood-eye now, dark and terrible. That last line could be implying dark red blood or black blood, and either works well. As you can see, the symbolism of his left eye is red and black, crows and blood. This is the familiar waves of night and blood symbolism, of course, which represents the waves of darkness, bleeding stars, and metaphorical moon blood that comes from the fire moon when it wanders into God's eye eclipse position and cracks open. We see this waves of night and blood symbolism most strongly in Oathkeeper and Widow's Whale, and also in Melisandre's visions of a black and bloody tide sweeping over towers by the sea. And fittingly, this theme is echoed elsewhere in Euron's symbolism. Not even echoed, really, so much as dripping from all of his pores. Euron sometimes appears accompanied by the waves of blood motif, such as that line from Okoro about Euron's black-eyed, squid-like shadow sailing on a sea of blood. So not only waves of blood, but ocean waves of blood. Or such as in the Forsaken chapter when Euron has a nightmare vision of Euron and sees the long ships of the Ironborn adrift and burning on a boiling blood-red sea. Again, ...oceans of blood. This vision occurs moments after Euron appears... ...wearing a blood-red cape and a red-leather eye patch. And let's not forget Euron's ship, The Silence... ...of which Aaron thinks... ...the decks of Euron's ship were painted red... ...to better hide the blood that soaked them. I think you'd agree. Euron has waves upon waves of waves of blood symbolism. How about the waves of night? Well, for starters, Euron drinks liquid darkness... The Shade of the Evening, Wine of the Warlocks, which is bluish-black in color. In the quote where the moon leered with Euron's face, the moon floated on a black-wine sea. So again, not only waves of darkness, but oceans of darkness. He likes to wear that black sable coat of Baylor Black Tide, And of course, a black tide brings us right back to ocean waves of darkness. Euron's black hair is also described as as black as a midnight sea, so say it with me. Ocean waves of darkness yet again. Also, Midnight Sea, Midnight Sea.
3: Where have we heard that phrase before? Stannis kept his own whiskers cropped tight and short. They lay like a blue-black shadow across his square jaw and the bony hollows of his cheeks. His eyes were open wounds beneath his heavy brows, a blue as dark as the sea by night.
2: Ah, yes, that's right. See what I mean about Stannis and Euron sharing this blue-black shadow symbolism? Here you can see how close it is, with copious references to a midnight sea or a nighttime sea and the colors black and dark blue. And since Stannis's nighttime sea blue eyes are described as wounds, well, it's implying blue blood. And that means a dark blue blood ocean. Waves of blood. Hate to keep saying it, but I mean, there it is. It's all that kinsling, I guess, it takes a toll on your very soul. Now, Stannis comparisons aside, all of Euron's waves of blood and waves of night eye symbolism really comes together with Euron's sigil, which Sam sees as he sails near Old Town, asking.
3: Who would be so mad as to raid this close to Old Town? Zondo pointed at a half sunken longship in the shallows. The remnants of a banner drooped from her stern. Smoke stained and ragged, the charge was one Sam had never seen before. A red eye with a black pupil, beneath a black iron crown supported by two crows. "'Whose banner is that?' Sam asked. Zondo only shrugged. "'The red eye with the black pupil is the god's eye symbol,
2: with the black pupil being the fire moon, which turns into a black hole in the sky, and the red iris being the sun.' That's, of course, the image I use for all of my logos. An image that I assembled simply by visualizing what the myth implies when it says that the moon wandered too close to the sun. And by thinking about the sun and moon as the eyes of God. And that was before I found the crow's eye sigil. At which point I was like, hot damn, there it is. Look, it's a diagram. Most importantly, it's not just a matching image, but the right surrounding symbolism. The standard that Sam sees is smoke-stained further implying the long night events, when the god's eye was clouded by smoke. And the black crown symbol is featured prominently on the standard. Of course, we know what the black crown's all about. Stanis has a fringe of hair that looks like a shadow crown. Aemond One-Eye wears the black crown of Aegon the Conqueror. And even Waymar actually has a different sort of black crown, as implied by the line from the prologue, which says, His cloak was his crown in glory, sable, thick and black and soft as sin. A sinful black crown, that's excellent. And of course, Euron also wears a black sable cloak, the former cloak of Baylor Blacktide, as we mentioned. Euron is also spotted with a black crown in the Forsaken chapter, fittingly.
3: When Euron came again, his hair was swept straight back from his brow, and his lips were so blue that they were almost black. He had put aside his driftwood crown. In its place, he wore an iron crown, whose points were made from the teeth of sharks.
2: Let that be the next replica item from Valerian Steel, a black iron crown with shark's teeth. Okay, okay, shark's teeth with little laser beams on them, fine. Get on it, Valerian Steel! And I'm still waiting for my complimentary book-accurate Damascus Steel Oathkeeper with the fashionable waves of night and blood coloring to the blade. I'm just saying, it might be worth lots of free advertising on a certain podcast. Come on, Valerian Steel. Anyways, the Crow's Eye banner also makes an appearance in the Forsaken chapter.
3: And so, damp hair returned to the salt sea. A dozen longships were drawn up at the wharf below the castle, and twice as many beached along the strand. Familiar banners streamed from their masts. The Greyjoy Kraken, the Bloody Moon of Winch, the Warhorn of Goodbrother. But from their sterns flew a flag the priest had never seen before. A red eye with a black pupil beneath an iron crown, Supported by two crows.
2: Well, once again, I will say that the gang is all here. The Bloody Moon sigil, connected to the word winch, implies pulling down the moon and bringing on the waves of moon blood. While the war horn of Good Brother, which looks just like Euron's dragonbinder horn and evokes things like the binding of meteor dragons, waking giants in the earth, and the hammer of the waters event, which, in my opinion, involved meteor dragons, waking giants in the earth by causing land collapse at the arm of Dorne. The kraken is a thing which pulls things down into the darkness of the sea, which complements the winch-blooded moon sigil. Above all, we have a picture of the god's eye eclipse, wrought in the colors of blood and night. There is a developing pattern of Euron hiding his crow's eye, blood eye, in the waking world, and then showing it when he appears in dreams and visions. We already mentioned how Makoro sees Euron in a fire vision as a squid-like black shadow with one black eye and this is continued in the two Shade of the Evening-induced nightmares that Aaron Damphair has in the Forsaken chapter. In the first, Euron appears thusly.
3: When he laughed, his face sloughed off, and the priest saw that it was not Yuri, but Euron, the smiling eye hidden. He showed the world his blood-eye now, dark and terrible, clad head to heel, in scale as dark as onyx. He sat upon a mound of blackened skulls as dwarfs capered around his feet and a forest burned behind him.
2: This is the first time we've seen what's under Euron's eye patch in any sense, and although we don't learn too much that we can translate into the real world, we do now know that Euron's blood eye is a dark and terrible blood eye, whatever that means. Wait, we know what that means. Waves of blood and night, coming from the god's eye eclipse. Euron even mentions the comet in the next paragraph, saying that the Bleeding Star bespoke the end. In Euron's second nightmare, it goes like this.
3: The dreams were even worse the second time. He saw the longships of the Ironborn adrift and burning on a boiling blood-red sea. He saw his brother on the Iron Throne again. But Euron was no longer human. He seemed more squid than man, a monster fathered by a kraken of the deep. His face. A mass of writhing tentacles.
2: This is basically Euron's Cthulhu face, and it's very similar to Makoro's visions of a one-eyed black squid shadow. Given that his face is like a leering moon earlier in the chapter, we're given the image of a moon, which has somehow turned into a vortex of black tentacles. This is a slightly more aggressive depiction of the waves of night, the black clouds of smoke and debris which would have spread outward from the god's eye eclipse in the sky when the moon explodes. Imagine the smoke spreading outward from the explosion like black tentacles, and I think that's how the moon turns into a black eye and a black squid. In summary, Euron's crow's eye sigil looks like an eclipse, and it's a mirror image of the god's eye lake in the Isle of Faces. The god's eye symbolizes the eclipse which occurred when the fire moon exploded, and thus it corresponds with Euron's left eye, which is either his crow's eye or his blood eye, and which is either covered by a black or red patch. This is really vivid mythical astronomy, folks, so I hope you're digging this. Martin is basically giving us a detailed diagram here between Euron's sigil and his crow's eye. And then we have his other eye, which is called his smiling eye. I would tend to think that the smiling thing refers to a smiling Cheshire Cat crescent moon, but it's hard to say for sure. It's described by Victorian in A Feast for Crows as blue as a summer sky, which is kind of a confounding description because summer is almost always symbolized by gold and green. There's another line about Euron having seduced them with his glib tongue and smiling eye. And of course, Victorian often repeats that all Euron's gifts are poisoned. So perhaps the idea of a smiling blue eye being compared to summer is that of a false promise or a poisoned gift. One thinks of summer snows, or simply of the idea that winter is coming, but it's not here yet. It's funny that Leanna's blue winter roses in the sky in Ned's Tower of Joy dream are as blue as the eyes of death, while Euron's deadly, seductive blue eyes like a summer sky. Labeling the blue eye as the blue of a summer sky might be a continuation of the blue star slash cold sun slash burning cold imagery. In other scenes, Euron's smiling eye is glittering, which is a word that makes us think of gems and starlight, in the Forsaken chapter, there's a line which says, His brother's smiling eye glittered in the lantern light, blue and bold and full of malice. Full of malice? Well, that's more like it. I told you that smiling eye thing was bullshit. Anyway, the point is the glittering, and it also happens when Victorian sees Euron before the King's Moot in a feast for crows.
3: As it happens, I have oft sat upon the sea stone chair of late. It raises no objections. His smiling eye was glittering. Who knows more of gods than I? Horse gods and fire gods. Gods made of gold with gemstone eyes. Gods carved of cedar wood. Gods chiseled into mountains. Gods of empty air. I know them all. This
2: last passage encourages us to see Euron's glittering blue eye as a gem, like a sapphire, or better yet, a blue star sapphire, like our friend King Ice Dragon, Aemon One-Eye. Euron seems set up to parallel the Bloodstone Emperor, which we're about to discuss, so the reference to golden gods with gemstone eyes here is notable, because they sound a lot like idols that might have come from the Great Empire of the Dawn. Euron's blood and black crow's eye makes us think of the Bloodstone Emperor anyway, since the Bloodstone Emperor was remembered as having caused the long night and thus triggering the waves of blood and night, the storm of bleeding stars which bespoke the end. We know that the others came during the Long Night, and I'm proposing that the Bloodstone Emperor Azora High quote-unquote, became the Night's King in some sense, and I think that's why we keep seeing the blue star eye symbol paired with a destroyed Fire Moon eye symbol. Waymar has a blue star eye, Aemond One Eye has a blue star sapphire eye, and now Euron has a blue smiling eye that glitters like a gem or star, and in the same paragraph that he speaks about golden gods with gemstone eyes. The Bloodstone Emperor Reborn. This section is brought to you by the Patreon support of two members of the Sacred Order of the Black Hand: Sir Dale the Winged Fist, the last scion of House Mud and captain of the dread ship Black Squirrel, and Sir Stoyles of Longbranch, seeker of Pale Blood. Much to my great delight, more and more people are coming to think of Euron as either a would-be knight's king figure or a would-be bloodstone emperor figure, and I think he's both, of course. Let's consider the obvious parallels that Euron has to the story of the bloodstone emperor, starting with the simple fact that he's seeking after Daenerys, who parallels the amethyst empress. Euron is actually the one to refer to Daenerys in language that casts her in that role, calling her the fairest woman in the world whose hair is silver gold and her eyes are amethysts. Like the Bloodstone Emperor stealing the throne of his sister, and probably sister-wife, the Amethyst Empress, it's safe to assume that Euron is mostly interested in stealing Danny's power and Danny's dragons. It's certainly clear that Euron thinks he's the type of dude who can ride a dragon. He brags of having been to Valyria, and he's got the magic horn to lend credence to his claim. In the Forsaken chapter, he even appears wearing a magnificent suit of Valyrian steel armor, and by all means, you should be reading this passage as a vision of the Bloodstone Emperor, Azor High, the pirate lord from Ashai, sailing to Westeros.
3: Euron Crow's Eyes stood upon the deck of silence, clad in a suit of black scale armor like nothing Eron had ever seen before. Dark as smoke it was, but Euron wore it as easily as if it was the thinnest silk. The scales were edged in red to gold, and gleamed and shimmered when they moved. Patterns could be seen within the metal. Whirls and glyphs and arcane symbols folded into the steel. Valyrian steel, the damp hair knew. His armor is Valyrian steel. In all the Seven Kingdoms, no man owned a suit of Valyrian steel. Such things had been known 400 years ago, in the days before the Doom. But even then, they would have cost a kingdom... Euron did not lie. He has been to Valyria. No wonder he was mad.
2: Like I said, there's really no question that Euron thinks of himself as one who can ride a dragon. Delusions of Grandeur doesn't even begin to describe Euron's monumental ambition, as Euron aims to make himself a new god on Earth, just as the first emperor of the Great Empire of the Dawn was called the God on Earth, and by the way the Yitish continue to use this title in imitation of their ancestors from the Great Empire of the Dawn. This next bit is from Aeron's first nightmare, when he saw Euron showing his blood-eye and sitting atop a pile of blackened skulls.
3: The bleeding star bespoke the end. He said to Aron, These are the last days, when the world shall be broken and remade. A new god shall be born from the graves and charnel pits. Then Euron lifted a great horn to his lips and blew... And dragons and krakens and sphinxes came at his command and bowed before him. Kneel, brother, the crow's eye commanded. I am your king. I am your god. Worship me and I will raise you up to be my priest.
2: This is basically the darkest version of Azor reborn we've seen yet. The new god who is born from the charnel pits in the graves when the bleeding star remakes the world. This is Euron's true ambition, not just the Iron Throne, but some sort of twisted, yet deified state. This is a match for the most important aspect of the Azor Ahai character, the Luciferian action of challenging the gods and seeking to become like God by stealing the fire of the gods. Euron is the very personification of this, as you can see. He's quite open about it, about as open as his bathrobe when he's being all creepy and shit with his brother Victarion.
3: The crow's high had taken Lord Hewitt's bedchamber along with his bastard daughter. When he entered, the girl was sprawled naked on the bed, snoring softly. Euron stood by the window, drinking from a silver cup. He wore the sable cloak he took from the black tide, his red leather eye patch, and nothing else. When I was a boy, I dreamt that I could fly, he announced. When I woke, I couldn't. Or so the maester said. But what if he lied? Victorian could smell the sea through the open window, though the room stank of wine and blood and sex. The cold, salt air helped to clear his head. What do you mean? Euron turned to face him. His bruised blue lips curled in a half-smile. Perhaps we can fly, all of us. How will we ever know? "'unless we leap from some tall tower.' "'The wind came gusting through the window "'and stirred his sable cloak. "'There was something obscene and disturbing about his nakedness. "'No man ever truly knows what he can do "'unless he dares to leap. "'There is the window. Leap.' Victorian had no patience for this. "'His wounded hand was troubling him. "'What do you want?' "'The world.' Firelight glimmered in Euron's eye, his smiling eye. Will you take a cup of Lord Hewitt's wine? There's no wine half so sweet as wine taken from a beaten foe. No. Victorian glanced away. Cover yourself.
2: That scene doesn't need a ton of breakdown. It's a pretty visceral example of Euron, drunk on warlock wine and lust for power. Victarion's not-at-all-amused routine provides a humorous counterpoint to Euron's lewdness, which is what keeps the scene grounded in Martin's signature realistic fantasy style. Euron's own brother isn't even sure whether or not to take this sort of grand visionary talk seriously at this point, in other words. Victarion thinks he can, quote-unquote, steal Daenerys from Euron, but I think everyone knows that Euron is several steps ahead of Victarion, and Victarion double-crosses Euron at his own peril. Some people also think that Euron will have something to do with triggering the new Long Night, if such a thing is even possible. Like you know, he'll drink so much shade of the evening that he'll actually bring on the Long Night or something. At the least, it definitely seems clear that Euron is set to be the primary human villain of the third act of the story, which will soon be moving into a new Long Night. But there are clues about him having some more direct connection to the new Long Night, beginning with these parallels to the Bloodstone Emperor, who was, of course, credited in the Far East with bringing on the Long Night with dark magic. There's also that excellent little nightmare monologue about the bleeding star and the world breaking and the end of days, plus his tooting on the horn and being able to command a dragon's krakens and sphinxes. I, for one, tend to think that the Dragonbinder Horn is the most important horn in the story, despite the allure of Sam's old broken horn being the true horn, a la Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. I'm curious to see if the dragonbinder horn really does bind dragons, or whether it might be for some other purpose, or maybe both. But one thing is for sure. If Euron, as a one-blue-eyed knight's king figure, is to steal a dragon, there's really only one dragon it can be. the Viserion, the whitish-colored dragon. Euron would essentially be emulating the ice dragon king Aemon One-Eye riding Vagar, which would be pretty sweet, you have to admit. At that point, knight's king figures riding dragons would be a pattern that one could easily point to. And don't forget that Stannis has been trying to figure out a way to hatch a stone dragon for a couple of years now. The other leading contender to ride a dragon would, of course, be Jon, another Azor high Night's King figure. So, it really seems like Night's King, the original one, is being implied as a dragon person from many directions. I have to say, I really would not be surprised if Euron actually gets Viserion. Call it an official prediction, if you will and expect other parallels to be drawn to Aemond One-Eye if indeed that happens. But even without a dragon, Euron does seem set to attack Old Town in the Winds of Winter. That's an important potential echo of the dragon lords from Ashai, led by the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai, attacking Old Town and Battle Isle during the Long Night, or maybe just before. This battle would of course be the long-lost battle which gave Battle Isle its name, before vanishing from the historical record, which is a mystery alluded to by the maesters in the world of ice and fire. It's especially important because, well, this is where the rubber meets the road, where east meets west, where the flaming sword dragon hero from the far east intersects with the Westerosi events of the Long Night. It's basically the hinging point of the Azor High fable, if you will. So this few stone fortress on Battle Isle, it's the oldest structure at Old Town's location, and perhaps the oldest surviving structure in all of Westeros. And as we all know, fused stone can only be created by dragon lords using sorcery and controlled dragon fire so i think we can safely conclude that the fused stone fortress at battle isle was built by dragon lords who came to westeros before the long night this would be the logical place to begin an invasion from if you're zorahai the evil dragon lord and we also have a couple historical parallels that suggest it and that's besides euron's attack of old town such as these three and this is from the world of ice and fire
3: as Old Town grew wealthy and powerful, neighboring lords and petty kings turned covetous eyes upon its riches, and pirates and reavers from beyond the seas heard tales of its splendors as well. Thrice in the space of a single century, the city was taken and sacked once by the Dornish king Samuel Dane, the Starfire, once by Cored the Cruel and his Iron Men. And once by Giles Gardner, the Woe, who reportedly sold three quarters of the city's inhabitants into slavery, but was unable to breach the defences of the Tower on Battle Isle.
2: Notice how the idea of pirates attacking Old Town is kind of a thing, as I like to say. I've half-jokingly called Azor Ahai and his crew pirates from Ashai for the simple fact that they came from Ashai and seemed to have attacked Westeros. Huron isn't from Asshai, of course, but it's easy to see how his having sailed to Asshai and then to Westeros to conquer, beginning with an attack on Old Town in the Reach, serves as a great plot echo of the Pirates from Asshai invasion of Azor Ahai. As for the three named in this paragraph, well, it's easy to see how Samwell's Starfire Dane could be an Azor Ahai figure, since the Danes seem to descend from those ancient dragonlords from Asshai. And the Starfire Dane sounds especially like a meteor landing. Korred the Cruel is another pirate, and he's of the black-blooded line of House Whore. And, of course, the Ironborn are another civilization with strong clues about a far-eastern, non-First Men origin. Then we have Giles the Woe Gardener. That might not be obvious at first, as an Azor Ahai parallel, unless you're familiar with the Sacred Order of Green Zombie series in which case you'll know that House Gardener, descended of Garth's firstborn son, implies the stagman symbolism, and a gardener named The Woe, who sacked Old Town and sold three-quarters of its population into slavery, would be some kind of evil stagman, which is definitely part of Azor Ahai's backstory. There's also an odd little bit of Oldtown lore involving the Isle of Ravens, which is the oldest part of the Citadel. You might remember Sam going there to meet Archmaester Walgrave and his White Ravens in a feast for crows. Alaris the Sphinx tells Sam that, in the Age of Heroes, it was supposedly the stronghold of a pirate lord who sat here robbing ships as they came down the river. That's not quite the same thing as a pirate attacking Old Town, but it's possible that Azor Ahai ruled here for a time, and that this legend is a garbled account of that. The other pirate lords, quote-unquote, that we have in the series, tend to set themselves up in the Stepstones with its Bloodstone Island, which is, of course, the place that Daemon Targaryen took as his seat when he declared himself the King of the Narrow Sea, which is really just a fancy way of saying pirate lord. Finally, Obara Sand, one of Oberyn Martell's Sand Snake daughters, suggests burning Oldtown, something Lady Nim characterizes as Obara wanting to make Oldtown our father's funeral pyre. And yes, you should be thinking of Drogo's funeral pyre, because Drogo and Oberyn are both wicked Azora high Dark Solar King figures. Making Old Town Oberyn's pyre makes Oberyn sound like a falling sun spear landing on Old Town and setting it on fire, much like Samwell Starfire Dane and like the Bloodstone Emperor, the guy named after a bleeding star, the one that bespoke the end, to be sure. So a little bit of a detour there. But the point is that if and when Yuron attacks and or burns Old Town, he will probably be echoing the actions of the Bloodstone Emperor Azor Ahai during the Long Night. Warlock Walker This final section is brought to you by four members of the Priesthood of Starry Wisdom. Black-Eyed Lily, the Dark Phoenix, the Orange Man... The Venus of Ostkick, Starry Lady of the Dragonstones. And Lady Danelle Bolwar, the Soaring Bat of Blackjack Mountain. The other thing which suggests Euron may be connected to the fall of a new long night is his implied connection to the others. Implied connection to the others, you ask? Yes. Behold these quotes about Euron. And the first one is from his first on-page appearance in A Feast for Crows as he banters with the Victarion before the Kingsmoot.
3: On that we can agree. Euron lifted two fingers to the patch that covered his left eye, and took his leave. The others followed at his heels like mongrel dogs. The others followed Euron, eh? Very interesting.
2: The next one is from a bit later in A Feast for Crows, after the Ironborn have won a great sea battle, and this is Victarion musing.
3: Aye, he thought. A great victory for the Crow's Eye and his wizards. The other captains would shout his brother's name anew when the tidings reached Oakenshield.
2: The other captains, huh? Then we have this line from Theon in A Dance with Dragons, speaking of Victarion and then Euron.
3: The King's Moot crowned his brother Euron, and the Crow's Eye has other wars to fight.
2: Yes, the Crow's Eye has other wars to fight. Very interesting. Sounds like good material for the winds of winter, or a dream of spring. It happens again when Christopher Botley sneaks away from Euron's fleet in A Dance with Dragons. After saying that Trist lacked the courage, or
3: madness, to
2: defy Euron to his face,
3: it says that... When the crow's eye took the fleet to sea, Triss had simply lagged behind, changing course only when the other ships were lost to sight. Well, hot dam.
2: Or rather, cold dam. Euron's fleet of other ships rears its ugly head again. And what about the crew of Euron's ship, Silence?
3: The men upon the shore had spied their sails. Shouts echoed across the bay as friends and kin called out greetings, but not from Silence. On her decks, a motley crew of mutes and mongrels spoke no word as the iron victory drew nigh. Men black as tar stared out at him, and others squat and hairy as the apes of Sothoros. Monsters, Victorian thought.
2: There are others on Euron's ship, others who are monsters. What was the name of Gilly's baby who was supposed to be turned into an other? Oh, that's right, monster. There are other examples of this kind of language around the Ironborn, (laughs) though Euron isn't specifically on hand for all of them. This is from Aaron Greyjoy's The Prophet chapter of A Feast for Crows, as he comes ashore from praying in the ocean, as he's wont to do, and is greeted by one of the soft mainlander ironborn, who were only ever sprinkled with a few drops of salt water, not actually drowned and resuscitated like a real fanatic.
3: "'Such tidings as we bear are for your ears alone, Dampere,' the spar said. "'These are not matters I would speak of here, before these others. "'These others are my drowned men.' God's servants, just as I am. I have no secrets from them, nor from our God, beside whose holy sea I stand. It's pretty great how they repeat it twice here.
2: These others are the drowned men. Obviously, the baptism-like ritual of drowning and resuscitating that makes one a drowned man is a kind of transformation, which might stand in for the process of turning a human or human baby into another, And eventually we'll talk about the symbolism of cold lakes and ponds and seas and what that has to do with the others. There are actually a whole slew of quotes like this casting the drowned men as the others, in this chapter especially. I was actually playing coy with you to be honest. I'm saving those for our discussion of aquatic symbolism. But take my word for it that the drowned men are often used to symbolize the others. Now like I said, Euron isn't here, but he basically inherits all of the Ironborn including most of these drowned men, once he consolidates his power. In another sense, all Ironborn are drowned men, in that they are all at least ritually baptized, even if they aren't actually drowned. So look, I don't know what literal connection Euron might have with the others. Feel free to speculate. The one thing that he has that I could see being involved in some sort of magic ritual that helps bring on the new Long Night is that horn, like I said, but what I can tell you is that we are seeing an inherent connection to the Others implied with all the people who portray this bloodstone emperor, knight's king, evil Azor Ahai archetype. I would suggest that that connection could be my theory about knight's king, that he was Azor Ahai, or a son or brother, and that he created the Others with knight's queen. Here's what I will say about Euron and the Others. Look for Euron and the invasion of the Others to interact with each other in some kind of meaningful way, or look for Euron to commit some act which enables the invasion of the Others, either intentionally or accidentally. The final thing, and it's a pretty big thing, that we need to talk about in regards to Euron is something that ties him both to the Others and the Bloodstone Emperor-Knight's King archetype, and that's his connection to the Warlocks and the shade of the evening that they brew up. And yes, now the time is right. You can take your sip of psychedelic brew if you've got some. Right off the bat... We know a few things about Shade of the Evening. Its name implies nighttime and darkness, of course. It's very dark in color, and it famously stains the lips of those who drink it blue. Euron's lips are described as blue and bruised, and all the warlocks we see, as well as the Undying themselves, have dark blue lips. On the most basic level, it makes sense to associate blue lips with cold and ice, since staying out in the cold too long does indeed turn your lips blue. Blue has also been pretty consistently associated with others and icy symbolism. I mean, the others basically have two colors, white and blue. And I guessed crystal, which isn't really a color, although it can lead to rainbow symbolism, but that's a tale for another day. There's a creepy clue about warlocks and ice symbolism to be found in a dream that Danny has of his dar as some kind of warlock in a dance with dragons, and she has that one the night before she is to wed him. Some people think this dream foreshadows Danny hooking up with Euron, as a matter of fact.
3: Beneath her coverlets, she tossed and turned, dreaming that Hisdar was kissing her. But his lips were blue and bruised, and when he thrust himself inside her, his manhood was cold as ice. She sat up with her hair disheveled and the bedclothes a tangle.
2: It's not clear why Danny's subconscious merges Hisdar with the Warlocks. Perhaps they are both simply threats to her at the moment, but whatever the reason, we see that there is an implied connection between warlocks and ice. If this is meant as a foreshadowing of Euron and Danny, well, it sounds as creepy as one might imagine a romantic encounter with Euron would be, so for Danny's sake, let's hope this isn't the case. But if this is meant to portray Euron in some sense, it would simply add to Euron's ice and darkness symbolism, which he shares with the warlocks anyway. We actually find a lot more evidence encouraging us to associate the warlocks and their warlock wine with the icy side of things when Danny marches straight into the middle of their dusty-ass temple with Drogon and burns the place down. When Daenerys finally gets to the center of the maze, she finds that the undying of Karth are basically blue shadows. This is from A Clash of Kings.
3: Through the narrow door she passed, into a chamber awash in gloom. A long stone table filled this room... Above it floated a human heart, swollen and blue with corruption, yet still alive. It beat a deep ponderous throb of sound, and each pulse sent out a wash of indigo light. The figures around the table were no more than blue shadows. As Danny walked to the empty chair at the foot of the table, they did not stir, nor speak, nor turn to face her. There was no sound but the slow, deep beat of the rotting heart. Blue shadows aren't quite
2: white shadows, but they're pretty close. Very ancient shadow beings associated with blue, and as it turns out, cold. This next bit is from later in the scene, after Danny has seen a series of visions, ending with her foreseeing the freed slaves reaching their hands up to her.
3: They wanted her, needed her, the fire, the life. And Danny gasped and opened her arms to give herself to them. But then black wings buffeted her around the head, and a scream of fury cut the indigo air. And suddenly, the visions were gone, ripped away, and Danny's gasp turned to horror. The undying were all around her, blue and cold, whispering as they reached for her, pulling, stroking, tugging at her clothes, touching her with dry, cold hands, twining their fingers through her hair. All the strength had left her limbs. She could not move. Even her heart had ceased to beat. She felt a hand on her bare breast, twisting her nipple. Teeth found the soft skin of her throat. A mouth descended on one eye, licking, sucking, biting. Then indigo turned to orange, and whispers turned to screams. Her heart was pounding, racing. The hands and mouths were gone. Heat washed over her skin, and Danny blinked at a sudden glare. Perched above her, the dragon spread his wings, and tore at the terrible dark heart, ripping the rotten flesh to ribbons. And when his head snapped forward, fire flew from his open jaws. Bright and hot. It's easy to perceive this dark, cold blue heart as an
2: analog to the heart of winter, and these cold blue shadows as analogs to the others. And so it makes a certain amount of sense to see Drogon torching them. This is like a little bit of practice for the real fight for young Drogon here. Looks like his instincts are pretty good. Cold blue shadows equals Drakaris. So, considering Danny's experience with the Undying as a whole, there are several things to take note of. First, you can see that the symbolism of the Undying and the warlocks and their wine seems to be associated with icy symbolism and, obviously, darkness and evening and shade. And thus, Euron's blue lips and his taste in wine further aligns him with icy symbolism and long night symbolism. Both Euron and the Undying in this dusty warlock temple want to steal Danny's dragons and Danny's power, and very possibly her life. Definitely so in the warlock's case, and possibly so in Euron's case. I mean, given Euron's delusions of grandeur, willingness to use blood magic, and knowledge of ancient legend, he very well might see Daenerys as not only an amethyst-eyed empress worthy of one such as himself, but as a nissa-nissa to use in a blood magic ritual.
3: One other thought. Take a look at the warlock temple itself. In this city of splendors, Danny had expected the House of the Undying Ones to be the most splendid of all, but she emerged from her palanquin to behold a grey and ancient ruin. Long and low, without towers or windows, it coiled like a stone serpent through a grove of black bark trees whose inky blue leaves made the stuff of the sorcerer's drink the carthine, called Shade of the Evening. No other building stood near. Black tiles covered the palace roof, many fallen or broken. The mortar between the stones was dry and crumbling. She understood now why Zaro Zohan Daxas called it the Plaza of Dust. Even Drogon seemed disquieted by the sight of it. The black dragon hissed, smoke seeping out between his sharp teeth. "'Blood of my blood,' Jogo said in Dothraki. "'This is an evil place.' A horde of ghosts and magi, see how it drinks the morning sun. Let us go before it drinks us as well.
2: A stone serpent, especially a dark grey one that drinks the light, seems like an obvious black meteor symbol. Everything else which drinks the light is associated with those black meteors, like Ned's dark grey sword and the oily black stone of a shy. But inside the house of the undying are blue shadows and that cold blue heart. So what's this mean? Well, I think the message is simple. This building is indeed a black meteor symbol, and it's showing us that the others were created by one of these becoming frozen. In other words, the ice moon meteors that the others symbolized came from the ice moon, but only when a black meteor lodged inside it, just as the others were only created when Night's King gave his dragon seed to Night's Queen. And that's the same message we're seeing in many places. Another place we see that pattern is when moon-faced Euron drinks Shade of the Evening. That's right, just the simple fact of him drinking Shade of the Evening is interesting because that's a pale, icy moon face drinking liquid darkness. Euron's transformation into a blue, magical being, seeking after a kind of immortality, evokes the creation of the Others, as symbols of the ice moon swallowing a black meteor should. Thinking further on the warlock's beating blue heart, there's another possible ramification. If that blue shadow heart in this black meteor temple represents the Heart of Winter... Is the message that a black meteor is what lies at the heart of winter? If the heart of winter parallels the ice moon, as I believe it does, then it too might have a black dragon lodged in the ice, just like the ice moon, or at least just like I think it does. I've proposed this idea before, and I think it's a definite possibility. It's also possible the pale meteor that Dawn was made from is what's at the heart of winter, although I don't think it can be both. It has to be one or the other, I would say. But as we go forward and develop the dragon-locked-in-ice motif, you're going to see that pretty much every ice moon symbol has a black meteor symbol embedded inside it. So, if the Temple of the Others, deep in the Heart of Winter, has some sort of big, oily black meteor obelisk in the center of it, I won't be the least bit surprised. It will be surrounded by cold shadows, just as the blue heart in the House of the Undying is. And hopefully, Danny will promptly march in there and start setting things on fire, just as she did at the House of the Undying. All right, so we're just about finished here. You might be asking Does Euron have two wives? Well, yes, I think so. His Fire Moon bride is represented by the Iron Maiden on the prow of his ship, the Silence. And this quote is from Victorian's Iron Captain chapter of A Feast for Crows.
3: And then he saw her, a single masted galley, lean and low, with a dark red hull. Her sails, now furled, were black as a starless sky. Even at anchor, silence looked both cruel and fast. On her prow was a black iron maiden, with one arm outstretched. Her waist was slender, her breasts high and proud, her legs long and shapely. A wind-blown mane of black iron hair streamed from her head, and her eyes were mother of pearl, but she had no mouth.
2: Mother of Pearl, and regular old Pearls, are both widely recognized moon symbols, suggesting this Iron Maiden as some kind of Moon Maiden. Her black iron body and the blood-red ship she sails on, with black sails like a starless sky, no less, would seem to align her with the waves of blood and night that come from the Fire Moon's death. I also think that the mouthless Iron Maiden implies that the women Euron mutilates by removing their tongues work as parallel symbols of the slain Fire Moon. And indeed, in the Forsaken chapter... Euron ties one such victim, Falea Flowers, to the prow of the Silence, right next to the Iron Maiden. Even more horrifically, Falea Flowers was Euron's girlfriend, if you will, for a short time, and she's actually pregnant with Euron's child when she's tied to the prow of this ship. It's really dark stuff, for sure, and in terms of symbolism, you can see what's going on here. A pregnant moon, moon blood, fire moon death, and the blackening of the stars. As for Euron's Ice Moon Bride, well, he doesn't have her yet. I believe that we'll see it in two forms. Viserion, the whitish dragon, whom I think Euron might steal with the horn, and the Hands of White Fire Lady from the Forsaken chapter. Euron Damphair catches a glimpse of Dream Euron on the Iron Throne, and it says, Beside him stood a shadow in woman's form, long and tall and terrible, her hands alive with pale white fire. Nobody really knows for sure who this shadow woman with white fire hands is, but I know that white fire can be associated with the idea of cold fire, and the woman next to a knight's king figure like Euron should be a knight's queen figure. So whoever she is, expect her to have some sort of white dragon slash ice dragon symbolism. Heck, it could be that this white fire hands lady is a representation of Viserion. Wouldn't that be strange? Some have suggested that it could be Cersei, which makes a certain amount of sense, Cersei actually does have a couple of instances of icy symbolism that I've been perplexed about, such as being carved of ice or having eyes of ice. Now, I favor the idea that it will actually be Melora Hightower, known as the Mad Maid, who is reportedly studying the Hightower family books of spells with her father, Lord Leighton, atop the Hightower. She's not a character we've ever heard anything else about other than that, but the Hightower's White Tower crowned with flame sigil and possible dragon heritage gives them a kind of white dragon symbolism which could fit the bill. Melora is already a magic user, according to her reputation, and her name even sounds like Melisandre's name. Euron, however, has different ideas about who his second queen will be, of course. This line is from of Flowers, before Euron turns on her, as she fills in the imprisoned damp hair about a bit of news concerning the whereabouts of Victarion and the Iron Fleet. East,
3: she said,
1: with all his ships... He's to bring the dragon queen to Westeros. I'm to be your own salt wife, but he must have a rock wife too, a queen to rule all Westeros at his side. They say she's the most beautiful woman in the world, and she has dragons. The two of us will be as close as sisters.
2: Now, is it possible for Daenerys to transform from a fiery moon queen into an ice moon queen? Yes, absolutely. And when we cover Sansa and the Eerie in an upcoming episode, we'll see that that is what Sansa seems to be doing. Now, I don't think Danny will be Euron's queen, for what it's worth, but the line here about Phalia being Euron's salt wife and someone else being his rock wife and them being like sisters is noteworthy because it implies Euron as having wives who are sisters, like Aegon. And it highlights the fact that the Ironborn actually have an ancient tradition of kings with multiple wives that dates back thousands of years. Now, ultimately, I think Euron's clearest two-moon symbolism, after his eyes, of course, which are amazingly detailed, will turn out to be the black ship Silence and the white dragon Viserion. But we'll just have to wait and see who the Hands of White Fire Lady is and whether or not Euron actually gets that dragon. We'll also have to wait and see what the horn actually does and whether Euron has any sort of Greenseer ability, or if he was some sort of failed Bloodraven pupil, as some theorize. And of course, we'll have to wait and see what these apparent clues linking Euron to the others actually mean in practice. I think there's no question that Euron is one of the characters people are the most excited to see more from in The Winds of Winter. And now, thanks to our analysis of him in the context of an evil Azor Ahai-slash-Night's-King figure, you'll have an idea what his actions and symbols mean when you read his new chapters in Winds. All right, so what have we learned today? A lot, I think, and more than anything. I think we have greatly strengthened the conclusions laid out in Visenya Draconis about the knight's king and queen. Namely, that there was a direct link between Azor Ahai and knight's king, that knight's king reigned during the long night and not afterward, and that knight's king and knight's queen created the others during the long night. I honestly did not have a strong gut opinion about any of these issues before analyzing the symbolism of the others, but I think the symbolic clues are pretty clear and pretty consistent, and they seem to point to these conclusions again and again. In the next episode, RLJ, A Recipe for Making Ice Dragons, will be drilling down to the deepest level of meaning of John as the Song of Ice and Fire. We've seen today that John has some pretty strong ties to the others, and indeed, we have to understand why John is the song of ice and fire in order to grasp the true nature of the others.
0: Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app.